Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. Yeah. My name is William Bibiani. I'm a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. Uh, I don't have a cute nickname. You don't need to give me a cute nickname. It's fine. I think you just swell as you are. And uh, what are we listing about this time? Yeah, so every month here in the Iron List, uh, we, uh, Whitney and I, each do a competitive top ten list. He does a top ten list. I do a top ten list. Well, based on a topic. Not competitive, well, really. Not, we're not collaborating. I suppose not. We're not collaborating, mm-hmm. but it's a, it's a, we each do our own top ten lists based on a topic chosen by our patrons. We come up with mm-hmm. a series of suggestions for a top ten list we think might be fun. Our patrons decide which one it's going to be every single month. And uh, this month... We had uh, we had an interesting crop of films, and honestly, I, I could not have predicted that this one would have won because the 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 the, the nominees were uh, the best movies that begin with the letter E. This is a somewhat popular uh, uh, series we've been doing. Get to it every once in a while, trying to get through all every letter of the alphabet. The best crime movies, big bubble there, big dome under which you could put all those films. Uh, the best Meryl Streep movies, which I had my money on that one. Uh, and instead, we went for the best movies of 1971. 1971. Well, it's 2021, so you know yeah. it's nice, nice round number away from that. No, and it it absolutely is. It's 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 mm. 50 damn years, isn't it? What was going on in cinema 50 freaking years ago? And I think it's interesting to note what were like the big money makers. Because nowadays you look at the top ten and it's all it's all IPs. You know, there'll be a couple of big movies that show up in the in the middle of it. In the last pandemic years, those are odd, but you know, it's usually Disney movie, Disney movie, Disney movie, yeah. Warner Brothers movie, superhero movie, superhero movie, the two, young uh, adult. The two highest grossing films of this year uh, are both Chinese movies. That's true. It's the first time that's ever happened. Yep. And again, there's got a whole other month to turn that around, but I think mm. it's probably gonna be this this yeah. is the way it's well, un- un- unless like um what are like west side story or or um spider-man i think, think really, spider-man's uh... got the got a chance but we'll see how that mm. goes um in any case we're used to seeing these big summer blockbuster action type movies even though they don't come out during the summer dominate the box right. office here but that's, was... a, that's a very recent trend mm-hmm. however in, relatively in the long uh, long arm of film history uh here were here were the top 10 movies at the domestic box office in 1971 we're not going to devote a lot of time to this but i just want to give everyone an idea of here's what like the landscape was for this was the popular cinema number 10 the killer rat movie willard <laughs> <laughs> number nine peter bogdanovich is the last picture show an aching coming-of-age tale. Uh, a film called Carnal Knowledge, directed by Mike Nichols, starring Jack Nicholson and Art Garfunkel. And I think uh, I think Anne-Margaret was nominated for an Oscar for that film? I think so. Mm. Uh, a Clockwork Orange, which was X-rated at the time. An X-rated film. Yeah. Was a huge hit. Yeah, and it, and, and it was a Stanley Kubrick film to boot. Uh, number six was Dirty Harry. Uh, which was at the time a v- kind of viscerally political movie. Mm. Nowadays, we probably lump that into just the badass cop genre, but that was actually a serious drama mm. with actual like social issues on its mind. Uh, number five, Diamonds Are Forever. You can always count on James Bond to sneak into <laughs> one of these suckers, just with this. And that's one mm. of the, and that's one of the goofier ones, certainly of the Sean Connery era. So that one's a bit of an outlier. I'll give you that. Uh, number four, it's Summer of Forty Two. 
another coming of age movie about summer vacation on Nantucket. That's that was a, that outgrossed James Bond. And uh, it's, it's about a teenager who has a, a scandalous affair with an older woman. Ooh. Uh, number three was The French Connection, which, yeah, okay. It's one, one best picture. One best picture, there, big, yeah. big crime movie, excellent motion picture. Something tells me we might be talking about it later in the episode. Number two was Billy Jack. <laughs> that was a huge hit, Billy, Billy Jack. Jack was yeah. gigantic. <laughs> Billy Jack, it's a sequel to a movie called The Born Losers. And it was this independent kind of vigilante type thing. It's a very strange film. Look up the Billy Jack series. They're very weird. And number one, the highest grossing movie of 1971. Bigger than The French Connection, bigger than James Bond, bigger than Dirty Harry. Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah, which we uh, we talked about on a previous episode. Yeah, we talked about that on uh, an episode of... Uh, the, the, what is the, now the, called Critically Reclaimed, I believe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was uh, We did it in our streaming club, basically. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's a great damn movie. I don't know if we're going to be talking about it today, but we might. Um so that's an interesting collection. That's an interesting sort of array of what audiences were really into at the time. Mm-hmm. And obviously that's just the top ten. That doesn't necessarily mean anything, but I think it's neat. So how we do our top ten lists is uh, Whitney and I each pick ten films. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to go back and forth. Uh, and uh, we don't talk to each other about the lists. Usually we don't really talk about the criteria of the list, but here it's pretty irrelevant as long as it came out in America in 1971. Yeah. You're, you're set. Yeah. And uh, the ranking does not matter, but our number one does. Mm. That's that's like we got a gun to our head. What's the best movie in 1971? We have to pick that. But two through ten, I- I- irrelevant. We want you to see all of these movies. doesn't matter if it's number two or number eight. It doesn't matter. Please mm. see these movies. We like yeah. them a lot. The other thing I will say, the other caveat I will give is that there are actually, I really wanted to do a bit more research this month, but there were quite a few significant films from 1971 that I haven't seen or haven't seen in long enough time that I don't feel comfortable recommending them as part of this list and going into great detail. Yeah. Uh, one is such film as McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Mrs. Miller, <laughs> McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is, weird sequel, which is an amazing Miniver. motion picture, but I haven't seen it since college. So I don't really feel comfortable okay. talking about it. And there's a couple others like that. Uh, so if there seems like there's a couple of big ones missing, Okay, well, you know, the big ones, we'll talk about some of the more esoteric <laughs> stuff and I think that'll be yeah. okay. Uh, I think that's it. Winnie, anything else yeah. we want to get started? Uh, no. Well, 1971, um, looking over, uh, just very generally speaking. Yeah. Um, it was an incredibly manly year. Mm. There were a lot of uh, a, a good collection of good, that is a sizable collection of cop dramas mm-hmm. and uh, badass men firing guns kinds of movies. Uh, in, in, in addition to James Bond. So... Mm. You know, while you were talking about Fiddler on the Roof and there were some other, like, notable non... Not that these are action films, just that these are all very male-centric. We have films like Get Carter. We have films like Shaft. We have, uh, you know, films like Dirty Harry. Uh, A a lot of these types of movies uh, seemed to dominate the conversation at the time. And uh, I, I can't really put a thumb as like a sociological reason why that might be. Uh, why, why that particular type of uh, masculinity Maybe, was so in vogue we, at the time. One could make an argument. Mm. It's it's a general argument, and maybe it's a little too easy. Mm. Vietnam. It's possible, yeah. Yeah, there was a general tendency. A lot of people in the younger demographics were going to war. Or I knew mm. people who were in war. We had this in the last 20 years or so, 
where we started having, and for whatever reason, it was almost always in January. Mm. We started having more and more like very pro-military films pop up in January, or like oh, yeah. stuff like Acts of weird. Valor yeah, or yeah. American uh, American Sniper or, or Lone, American Lone Survivor like Christmas release. But yeah, I well, yeah, but yeah, it, like yeah. it, it went out wide in January. You know, it was mm. like Mark these, Wahlberg was in a lot of those Mark movies. Was in a lot of them, and like, and these are very much as and, and honestly, they were they were very obvious about their demographic. Mm. We support our troops, and we we believe in everything they're doing out there. Mm. And was, if you if you believe that too, come see our movie. And that was the appeal, and that was the demographic. And some of those movies yeah, are better than others, but really, they were it, there was a wave. It's really curious that that particular wave that you're referring to, uh, there weren't a lot of uh, protest movies. No, like there were there were things there and there, like Lions for Lambs or Jarhead. Mm-hmm. There were films that were addressing the war in a critical light. Yeah, but the dominant uh, mode of thinking about that war was mm-hmm. let's make art about. How how great the violence is, yeah, and how the war, the war is something really really noble. Yeah. When when uh, the Vietnam War started to become uh, you know more of a daily mm. part of the American conversation, more of a more of a daily concern in American lives, um, Hollywood started to make Vietnam movies, and one of their first efforts was a film called The Green Beret, mm. which they tried to do in sort of the rah rah World War II style, and it, people did not have it. <laughs> and you'll notice that the Vietnam movies we got are not very supportive of Vietnam, mm-hmm. but. I think there's enough of a sort of a post 9-11, the country, you know, supports this mm. kind of vibe that like a lot of the modern war movies don't really mm. have that. Uh, we don't really have a lot of war movies in 1971. Uh, there's a few. I'm curious if we're going to get to them. But uh-huh. um, in any case, uh, why don't we just jump in? Whitney, right. what is uh, what, what movie do you want to start with? Not well, number 10 per se. I, but I what do don't. Start with? I don't. There aren't. Uh, there are a couple of those uh, those manly films on my list. Oh, but, I, did not, uh, I didn't say manly. I said war films. War films. There, well, yeah, manly films are plenty. I got a few of those too. Uh, I don't have any war films on my list. Okay. I think I have. What do I got here? I got one. I got one. Okay. I got one. Also, uh, the 1970s were kind of notorious for being, uh, generally speaking, a very uh, sort of heady time for adult uh, dramatic films. Uh, there yeah. wasn't a lot of frivolity throughout the mm-hmm. 1970s. We did have Escape from the Planet of the Apes, one of the less interesting Planet of the Apes sequels. Mm-hmm. But there wasn't a lot in way of uh, escapist entertainment. That mold would be broken very in a big way by Star Wars and Close Encounters. Well, but there was this Cape Entertainment, but it tended to be cheap stuff, like schlock. Yeah. yeah like, like, you know, like, they weren't throwing billions of dollars at it. It was the stuff you ran out real quick were, and you would see it at a drive-in. And, and there were hits. There, there, you know, your Jaws is in your Exorcist. Well, even The Exorcist, though, is, is a pretty heady drama yeah. for adults. Um, These would be later films, but yes. So, yeah, finding lightness in 1971 was a, a little bit rare. Uh, finding comfort was a little bit rare. Finding love was a little bit rare. Uh, so I'm going to start with a rare romance that mm. a lot of people like to refer to, and it's Harold and Maude. Oh, that's a nice Ashby film. film. Um, that's Harold, a nice film. Uh, Harold and Maude is about a young man, Harold, who is obsessed with death. He is very depressed, uh, and he, in order to act out, uh, stages uh, suicides. Mm. Uh, mostly just to shock his mother, yeah, who he, is he's, rarely he's, affected by his his little stages. He's, he's very rich. He's a little mm. pampered, and he's so fed up with just the just the sort of um, just the phoniness of it all to go all mm. Holden Caulfield on you <laughs> that he just wants to do anything to break out of that. And even mm. though he's not shocking his mother, he is shocking her guests. 
Shang, yeah, and yeah. and she is uh, constantly trying to set him up with uh, romantic mates, mm-hmm. and uh, he uh, sh- you know shocks them all and scares them off with his his uh, suicide stagings. But he is also very interested in the macabre, and he uh, wants to buy a hearse. When he's given a roadster, mm-hmm. he kind of transforms it into a hearse. Yeah, he's uh, he's fascinated by death, but in a very lively way. Yeah, yeah which, which is interesting. Which, uh, you know, if, if you were a, a, ever a goth, you kind of understand where Harold is coming sure. from. Into Harold's life comes Maud, uh, played by Ruth Gordon uh, from Rosemary's Baby. Uh, uh, somebody who loves life and doesn't really care about the rules and is interested in sensual things. Uh, that is to say, you know, things of the senses, things about touching and smelling and tasting and experiencing nature. Yeah. 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 She's just very, very lively, very sweaty. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a famous sequence in the movie where they free a tree. Yeah. They see that a tree is going to be planted in the city. It's like, no, it can't be planted in the city. We're going to take it out into nature and plant it out there. And they put it on the back of a, a Vespa and the two of them sort of uh, charge off. And in each other, they kind of find a, a mutual appreciation, or I guess Harold more than anything, finds a new energy for living yeah. through his interactions with Maud. Mm-hmm. And they begin having a romance. Yep. He, I, I, I don't recall his exact age, but he, he's like maybe 19 or so. He's, he's, he's pretty in young. his late teens, early 20s. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and Maud is in her 70s. I she's think. in her 70s, yeah. I believe. And um, it's interesting just how he, does, he doesn't care. Mm-hmm. She's fine with it. They're both consenting adults. But uh, everyone around Harold is repulsed. And I actually do appreciate that even though the movie isn't ostensibly about this, mm-hmm. the movie is very upfront about this incredible double standard we have about mm-hmm. older, but, but when there are age gaps in relationships, as yeah, long as the yeah. man is older, people seem to be fine with it. But once mm. you reverse that, people well, start it's, saying it's like, it's unhealsome, it's gross. And it's like, uh, the, it's the wonderful, the wonderful two edged sort of, uh, mm-hmm. uh, sort of sexism, uh, mm-hmm. This is something that's come up in uh, recently uh, over the film Licorice Pizza, yeah. which is about uh, an ostensible romance between a 15-year-old boy and a 25-year-old woman. Yeah. And it's easy to imagine that gender flipped and how that would seem a lot less savory if mm-hmm. it were a 25-year-old man going after a 15-year-old girl. Yeah. Uh, I imagine that wouldn't be greeted as as openly. Yeah. And, and it's because... Uh, no matter what the situation, men are seen as sort of the the, the dominant one, the aggressors in a relationship. Well, and I think you're right. The film isn't about that, but it's it's part of it. It's in the yeah. text. Well, it's, it's a counterculture film in, mm. in, in a well, variety of ways. It's and about an unhappy mutant yeah. finding a happy mutant. Exactly. And how the, the influence of the happy mutant will eventually win out. Living outside of social norms, mm. even if it's just the norm of giving a shit about small things no one else cares about. Mm. You, or if it's about wanting to like really explore death in ways that make other people uncomfortable or they mm. wish you wouldn't. Or romantically... They're, this is something that Harold and Maude kind of celebrates, you know, mm. and it's easy to see why it was such a huge hit. Everyone in it is wonderful. It's got a wonderful sense of humor. Mm-hmm. It's a ex- deliciously odd. I love the ending. I think the ending is great. Um, mm. I, I, I admire this film a lot. I left it off of my list because of just a few other films that I like better. Okay. But it's it's really damn good. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah. The, it has an, an enormous following. It's easy to see why, just yeah. because it's so sweet. But it, it's what I appreciate about Harold and Maude is 
Harold eventually comes around to living a life of uh, music and appreciation. He actually mm. becomes a lot more lively. He kind of leaves a, a lot of his goth self behind. And there's actually a one big final gesture where he leaves his goth self behind. But at the same time, I think it is also celebrating his goth side. Because oh, when, sure. when he is sort of wallowing in this sort of like depressive state, it it does show that he does have a lot of interests and he actually has a lot of uh, excitement and passion mm-hmm. for it's essentially the death industry. Right. But it's also performance it's, art as well. He's an artist. Exactly. Yeah, it's, he's it's very performance enthused. art yeah. in, in a way where uh, that is, I think the film is actually also celebrating. Yeah. So no matter what kind of outsider you feel you are, you're going to see yourself in this film and you're going to see yourself celebrated in this film. Yeah. This isn't like, um, a lot of people have pointed to the film The Breakfast Club and that the Ali Sheedy character at the end of it, she's sort of like a, a, a recluse who wears a lot of dark eye makeup and yeah. you know, dyes her hair. She gets, a, she gets a makeover to be a lot more like Molly Ringwald. Yeah, she, she ends, yeah, she's seen in like a pink blouse by the end. Like mm-hmm. she needs to shed that old self and get rid of sort of that, that element of herself. And I feel like that's not an element of Harold and Maude. No. It kind of, it's, it celebrates his change, but it's more about him growing up than it is about some him ridding himself of something unhealthy. It's just about him becoming more joyous and appreciative of life. Yeah. Um, no, it's a lovely film, and I'm glad you picked it. Um, so again, I've, I've been doing this for a while, and I always try to reserve my number 10 spot for a movie that I'm kind of going to bat for this one. Other people might <laughs> okay. disagree. Yeah. Uh, maybe, maybe this is a long shot. Maybe other people will be like, eh. But, you know, I think as critics, you want to take the opportunity to talk about a few films that maybe are a little more maligned or unappreciated. In this case, it's a film that I think is really well known, but I know at least one person uh, who has already talked shit about it on this podcast, and it's Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I was like, I'm sitting here, I'm like, oh, that's my number 10, you dick. Um, this, is, this is the one where the apes get drunk. Well, this is... And other th- that's, that's, other that's th- a very reductive way of putting other, that. But. Other things happen in the movie as well. No, it's it's um, a large portion of the movie is a, a criticism of modern consumer culture. Well, I think it's a criticism a lot. I, yeah. I actually really like this film. And the original Planet of the Apes came out in the 1960s. I think the second one did too. Or was Six, it like, 68? I think the they just second, crank it right out. Or they, second they one I think might have been 70. And, and then the case, this one was 71. They, they really cranked these Planet of the Apes movies out. And what I appreciate about the Planet of the Apes movies that initial cycle is that with the exception of the second one, which is kind of retreading familiar territory, at mm. least until the third act, which goes off in its own direction, and <laughs> gets movie, really fucking weird. That movie's kooky. Yeah, like the first half, it's like literally just, okay, we, we, we're going to bring back Charlton Heston, but we can't get Charlton Heston for most of the movie, so we'll get James Franciscus. Was it James Franciscus? James Franciscus played, yeah. played a, a Taylor knockoff yeah, He looks just like yeah. him, and he goes through a similar story, and then it's almost the exact same movie until the third act, and then it just goes really super weird. And I admire it for that, but mm. not a great movie. But uh, three, four, and five, those are all very different films. Mm. For, for, to varying degrees of quality, certainly, but they're all like trying different things. Yeah. Escape from the Planet of the Apes follows uh, the two ape scientists from the original film as they... Decide and, and Salminio and Salminio, who dies way too early in the film, if you ask me. But anyway, um, they uh, they are escaping this destruction of the planet of the apes. Much as humanity would eventually destroy themselves with nuclear weaponry, so too did the apes end up destroying themselves as well. And mm-hmm. they decided to get in a spaceship and try to travel through time, just like Charlton Heston did, in order to escape that fate. Mm-hmm. They end up going back in time to at the time present day America. 
Uh, and it, it, it introduced this conceit that uh, Charlton Heston wasn't merely floating through space for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. That he found like some which sort of which was the, the, wormhole Which or was the conceit of the original film, sure. that there was just some sort of error and they sped up too fast and they went forward mm-hmm. in time. The point was there was no returning. Now they've introduced there's like a... a like he, a rift in space time, like a, some sort of portal that, that I they don't close find that, that that doesn't injure anything for me. That doesn't retroactively hurt the original film. It doesn't retroactively hurt the original film, but I think it's an incredibly corny conceit to get apes in into the modern day. But I will say this: I like the story that they got out of putting the apes in modern day. Mm. So the the ship crash lands, and they're very confused that there's a bunch of apes in this spaceship. And they start, like, sort of doing tests on them, and the apes are, like, trying to pretend to be normal apes mm-hmm. because they won't be, like, vivisected like they vivisected so many humans. Yeah, and ne- uh, Never mind that they're, you know, they're dressed in clothes. Right. But uh, they finally, they drop their cover, and they become celebrities. Here are apes from the, from the future. Mm-hmm. A future run by apes. And ev- they are gawked at, and they get to ex- enjoy the absolute decadence of contemporary living. Uh, And uh, they are constantly terrified they're going to be found out because their future and what they are and their past in that future Mm -hmm. is something that most humans would find shocking because, again, they used Mm -hmm. to dissect human beings, living ones, perfectly healthy ones, Uh, for science. And because humans were seen as less than human or less than ape, I suppose. Yeah, the the bad guy is... um... James Braden from one of the main soaps. I think it was mm-hmm. as the world turns or the young and the restless. Maybe. Um, yeah. One of those two. And uh, he, uh, he gets news that the apes are um, of what's going to happen to earth. Yeah. It, in apes are going to take t- over. Humans are going to be apes are going to take over creatures. Hu- hum- yeah. Humans are going to devolve. Apes are going to become the dominant species. And eventually uh, the earth is going to blow up. Yeah. Now this is, like tens of thousands of years in the future. Yeah. This is like distant, distant future. But Eric Braden becomes incredibly paranoid. Mm-hmm. He feels, wait, I can stop that mm-hmm. in 10,000 years. Yeah. If I kill the apes. Right. It becomes... doesn't seem like a very good motivation because well, it's so, dis- it's not like he's stopping something that's going to happen in his lifetime mm-hmm. or even in his kid's lifetime. It's right. like, this is like the, the grand arc of evolution. I would argue like that killing two apes isn't going to stop that. I would argue, oh. I would argue uh, that, 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 that works for me in a couple of levels. One, I really like how when the apes return to the present day and news gets out about the future, it turns into a modern day Greek tragedy on the same level as Oedipus or Electra. Or, yeah. You know, there's a future that has been foretold. We know what's going to happen and all everything we do to try to stop it only accelerates it. In this mm. case, it's very literal and it goes from the, the, the alteration to the timeline that occurs in this movie mm. means that the ape apocalypse that was supposed to happen 10,000 years in the future ends up happening within a generation. Yeah, and that's that's well, what happens by, by, by battle. By the time we get to uh, conquest of the planet of the apes and battle, yeah, and, you know. which I think is I think is really interesting. Basically, our paranoia, and not just our paranoia about how we were going to destroy the world, but about our our paranoia that led to our xenophobia, mm. ended up accelerating our our destruction. Mm. And you got to know this is a middle of the Cold War movie. Paranoia runs rampant, um, and I think they actually get something really poignant out of that. And I think the last act of this movie where the apes are on the run and they know that if any human finds them, they're going to die, but they just had a baby Mm. and they just want to do anything to protect this child. 
and the actual conclusion in which they sacrifice everything for that child mm-hmm. is genuinely poignant. And I would argue that it has as much of an emotional impact on me as the ending of the original Planet of the Apes. Perhaps more so because it's not relying on a twist. Mm-hmm. It's just relying on character and sacrifice and tragedy. And while it is not the most technically astounding motion picture here, in some respects the film is rather workmanlike, I really admire the way that this film takes what is already becoming a heavily exploited mm. Hollywood motion picture franchise and turns it into a real bummer <laughs> and actually <laughs> well, they, tries and actually tries to point the finger much in the way that the original film did and the second one kind of failed to do. And I think on that level, it's a very worthy follow-up and I think mm. it's a really good film and I think it deserves a little more appreciation for All being right. thoughtful uh, and actually... It, a pretty potent piece of pop cinema. It, it, it's difficult to, uh, to to peg Escape from the Planet of the Apes as thoughtful when it's been following a pattern that the series has of bummer endings. Uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the, in the first one, uh, you know the twist ending, but it is kind of a sad one yeah. where the Charlton Heston character realizes the true nature of the Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. In the second one, the entire planet fucking explodes. Yeah, but That's like kind of a, a bummer. But like on a whim, though. This is... this is No, this because is... people were worshipping a bomb and they couldn't let go of the nuclear power. It's, I realize that, but yeah. I don't feel like that's because of... We were trapped. Uh, we, we we were victims of our own character. I feel like that mm. feels really artificial, and uh, yeah. and again, it's all tacked onto the third act. Yeah, and uh, well, you know, and like I feel, it doesn't feel like a natural, mm. you know, tragedy for me. I, I feel the same way about Escape, and uh, Escape is also a lot less exciting because it takes place on modern day. It, mm. It's you know the budgets of, of this series just got cheaper and cheaper yeah. as the series. But went I think on. this is a much better way of doing mm. it than four and five did, where they tried to pretend they had money and they didn't. Here, uh, it's like, I suppose so, we're just yeah. going to make three four, apes four, that look good and everything else. To be in the present, and it's fine. Yeah, number four, they filmed in a mall in Century City mm-hmm. that had just been built, so it looked kind of futuristic. And number mm-hmm. five, they just filmed in a park. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's th- th- that that series just got cheaper and cheaper. But, and I would also argue that uh, uh, the the uh, Roddy McDowell and Kim Hunter, uh, Cornelius and Zero, the two lead apes, mm-hmm. they're giving great performances here. Oh yeah, I think they're really excellent here. I think they have juicier stuff to work with even than even the first one, at least for those two. Mm-hmm. And they get to really be center stage. And I think it's pretty good. I think it's yeah. a good film, and I just want to give it this this is my ah whatever let's give it a shot let's, let's <laughs> okay. throw it on as number 10 and see if see if it sticks see if people right. see if people are willing to accept this one as a big deal uh, what's your number right. nine uh my number nine um hmm, what do i want to talk about next i, I want to talk about the devils uh ah. the, the, the ken russell movie uh another one that we recently covered on uh, on critically yeah. reclaimed which i had seen for the first time for critically reclaimed i hadn't seen it before so damn good isn't it just yeah um Oliver Reed plays a sex priest <laughs> in the uh, film. In the film, uh, uh, <laughs> I said he plays one. Right. Uh, he also is one. I was about to say. No, uh, Oliver Reed uh, plays uh, a priest with some pretty progressive ideas about where uh, the priesthood and the where and the way churches ought to be. He thinks priests ought to be able to marry. He thinks sex is very healthy. Uh, and he is uh, sent by the uh, corrupt uh, local government and corrupt local church officials to a small village where he makes the uh, nuns so horny that it is the, the town essentially explodes. Yeah. And here's the thing. Mm. He ain't chased. No, he's sleeping no, with no. everyone, but he's just not sleeping with the nuns. And as a result, there's this there's this pent up frustration and, and... and and this is an order of nuns that is uh, particularly anti-sex yes uh, and they're you know incredibly ascetic and yeah. uh yeah, the repression Reed, just builds and builds and yeah, builds when, until it, when they're confronted yeah. with oliver reed's sensuality and like laid-back uh, attitudes about christianity uh they kind of can't handle it 
they begin, uh, you know, kind of cutting loose a little bit. And this is all exacerbated when uh, church officials are sent in to see what's like to check in to see what's going on. And they start flinging about like punishments. And that just causes everything to go into this Marquis de Sodden orgy of violence, nightmare yeah. uh, and uh, and uh, corporal punishment. Uh, Ken Russell made a gigantic, campy, fun, wicked, vicious kind of sexy movie, but he had a point. Mm. He was criticizing uh, the hypocrisy in the church and the hypocrisy of moral institutions that would control sex and marriage. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's actually incredibly wise about that. And I, I love Oliver Reed's performance in this. Mm -hmm. And I love the point he makes. He's not a villain. Uh, no, the, the, he's, he's the, the villain. victim. He's the, the martyr. villains are like there is one. I forgot the actor who played him. There's like one church official who sort of like emerges as the villain. Yeah. Uh, but the actual villain is the entire church. Yeah. This is a, a, a very subversive, very critical film of the Catholic Church as a body. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ken Russell was able to. Uh, sell that satire in something that is just wild and exciting and strange and off-putting and violent. Yeah. This is one of those movies that kind of just has everything. It's mm. got it's got meaningful commentary, but it is also just incredibly salacious. And if you wanted to view it purely on the surface, you'll get a lot of weird, crazy exploitation movie shit out of it. The performances are really good, but they're really good for people who are intensely repressed and are not behaving subtly. Mm. The production design ranges from, yeah, buy that, to what the fuck is that shit? <laughs> like, it's absolutely just a stunner from top to bottom. Uh, incredibly controversial. It's still hard to find the official, like, official, like, director's cut of this. Um, even, it's it's sometimes even just hard to find on streaming in America at all. Yeah. Uh, so get it however you can. I highly and, recommend it. And it's it. because um, of the controversy. We yeah. saw it on Shudder, but it's off Shudder now. Yeah. It kind yeah, of drifts it, through the streaming services see, from time to time. Let me see if it's currently somewhere in particular. Let me see yeah, if I can yeah, find yeah, it. Because this is a must-see movie for everybody. Uh, just everybody. Mm-hmm. I could not recommend it enough. I mean, it's, it's okay, maybe not everybody it's right. certainly not intended for younger audiences but yeah, for adult yeah. audiences but currently not available for streaming anywhere that i can find yeah, yeah. Uh, however it does pop up from time to time please see it if you can uh and it is an intense watch but it is an exceptionally good intelligent piece of, of cinema and what, um, I, uh, what i find curious about the devils is it, it was so notorious when it came out and it's yeah. been recut over the years and it's been difficult to find i've read the it's legends still, long before i saw the film it, it still carries that stigma it came out yeah. 50 years ago yeah. And we're still not sort of collectively digging through the archives and trying to restore this thing because of its bad reputation that is still following it after decades. It can't be all bad. I mean, no, the, it was in Space Jam, A New Legacy. Well, and this is the same year, you know, just a few years earlier, Midnight Cowboy came out. This is the same year as A Clockwork Orange. Those films have sort of shaken free of, you know, sort of their uh, their notoriety. Mm-hmm. Whereas the devils still rather stubbornly is hanging on to it. And it might be because of the anti-Catholic messaging in it mm-hmm. and the anti-Christian messaging in it. Uh, there might be some church groups who have put it on a list. So it's just whenever somebody tries to bring it up, some censor crawls out of the woodwork and says, no, no, you can't restore that one. Who's to say? Mm. Uh, 
But over time, usually films of this sort uh, tend to be either accepted as a, a grand work of art uh, or, or they or, people mellow out about it. Or, yeah, or people mellow out about it or they're, they're sort of outstripped in their notoriety by uh, even wilder, sexier movies. Well, it's, it's just, you know, even even if, if I think if a lot of people today were to sit down and watch something like, I don't know, Pink Flamingos, mm. they would probably be shocked. Well, Pink, but people aren't, people Pink just, Flamingos is, is still disgusting. My point is this. It's it's old now. Yeah, it's part of history. It's not something that people are contemporaneously super worried about mm-hmm. uh, because it's just it's this thing you'll find in a library. You know, it's an older work. Mm-hmm. Um, the devil still feels fresh, like the yeah. blood still mm-hmm. is tacky if you put your, if you run your finger on it. You know, it's not <laughs> it's not stained. It's still wet. Um, and it's a brilliant motion picture, mm-hmm. and um, that is on my list too mm-hmm. because it's a brilliant motion picture. Uh, a film I rewatched very recently, and I liked it before, but I kind of deeply fell in love with it uh, the this last October, okay. when it was part of my, you know, I don't have time to watch a lot of movies just for fun, you know, because we watch a lot of stuff here for the shows, and mm-hmm. um, but I wanted to make sure we watched, you know, at least a couple of horror movies just for funsies, <laughs> and a movie that I hadn't seen since, pff, I don't know, at least 10 years. And I liked it then, but I, I'm watching it now and I'm like, why aren't so many more movies like this? Why aren't so many more horror movies capturing this sort of playfully twisted, you know, theater of the macabre mm. uh, uh, kind of theatricality? So I'm going to highly recommend, I'm going to put on my list, The Abominable Dr. Fibes. That's <laughs> on my runner's app. Yeah, Abominable Dr. Fibes is a hoot. Uh, if, you're, if you were alive in the 60s or the 70s, uh, and you, in any way, pissed off Vincent Price. <laughs> he was going to he was stage. Going to fuck with you. And really this horrible is, revenge. This is a whole subgenre, is people pissed off Vincent Price, and now he's going to stage this incredibly elaborate, like, death vengeance mm. on you and everyone you've ever met. I still think the best version of this is Theater of Blood. Theater of Blood is amazing. Theater of Blood the stars Vincent Price as a really uh, hammy jil- theatrical actor. Jilted Shakespearean yeah. actor. And uh, there's a there's a society of critics that mocked him and made him feel slighted and he ended up uh, nearly killing himself, but he ends up surviving that and going quite mad and deciding to kill all of his critics uh in ways that were inspired by Shakespearean plays, because mm. Shakespearean plays were violent as fuck. Um, it's a great film. <laughs> uh, also a great film with pretty much the exact same plot, except for the theater theater angle, is the abominable Dr. Fives. Um, Vincent Price plays a brilliant organist and also doctor, uh, whose wife died in a car accident and all of the doctors who performed surgery on her could not save her and he blames the doctors Hmm. he has long since faked his own death or narrowly escaped his own death rather is more accurate Uh, and he has been spending the last few years plotting the ultimate revenge in which he's going to kill all of the doctors who failed to save his wife Uh, but inspired by the ten plagues of Egypt which and how fucking brassy is this (laughs) they make up a few (laughs) They decide that that's the kind of shit you don't know about. (laughs) They're going to change a few of them around. Which one was the freeze supposed to be? Oh, I think... One one of the murders in the Abominable Dr. Fives is he he locks somebody in a coach... And that yeah. has been outfitted with like a refrigeration device yeah. and can freeze him inside the coach. You know, like in the like in the ten plagues. Yeah, of like Egypt. like in one of one of the plagues of Egypt was yeah. 
cold, really cold locusts. I guess yeah. no, there's actually, actually are locusts in the movie. Let's see here, I'm, I'm trying to see if I can find the the mm. absolutely absurd. Uh, hold on. Uh, okay, yeah, so b- before before seven, uh, you know, really kind of popularized and made hip mm. that kind of type of uh, methodical serial killer story. Uh, the, mm. Vincent Price was laying waste to yeah. people in the sixties and seventies. So they change pestilence to bats for some reason, and they change because bats uh, carry pestilence. There's, there's, it's, there's, it's, there's, it's a little thin, but okay. There, yeah. And then they change uh, gnats or bugs uh, mm. to rats, which is a different kind of. Uh, uh, vermin, obviously, um, but um, yeah, I wonder, maybe it was darkness. Oh, hail, hail! Oh, okay. Yeah, we're 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 the assholes here. Hail! Sure, that actually hail, is a okay. real thing. Um, but um, anyway, so you, you run into all of these these schmucks. Mm. They're all assholes. They're all just selfish, mm. and that's the thing. If he was preying on people we liked, you'd run into a bit more of a slasher mentality. That's the thing about these kinds of like Vincent Price movies. The victims kind of are getting what they deserve. Like we're kind of with Vincent Price on this one. <laughs> and they, they, they're all getting their comeuppance in mm. some way. And it all culminates in a sequence where Joseph Cotton mm. has to perform surgery on his own son mm. on the fly in order to excavate a key from inside his son's body so he can unlock the boy's shackles before acid burns his face off. <laughs> If you watch the Abominable Doctor Fives mm. now, you will see like where we got James Wan from. Yeah, or it, it, or, or Rob Zombie, or a lot of a lot I think of specifically the... James Wan is an interesting way because mm. James Wan is a very playful filmmaker. We don't give enough credit for that. I think mm. Malignant definitely has this kind of like we know we're not taking this seriously tone. There's a, there's a definite cheese factor here. The Saw movies were very much based on these sort of elaborate death traps. Mm. Um. Even something like Dead Silence has some elements in the here, and I don't want to ruin it for you. Uh, but uh, anyway, this movie is a sick, twisted little treat, uh-huh. and it's one of my favorite Vincent Price movies, and that's saying something. Uh, and um, anyway, I just think it's great, and I think it doesn't get enough love, and if you haven't seen it, please do. Moving oh, on. That's, it, it's really quite good. Yep. Um, do I have any horror films on my list I can I talk about? Know. Um, I have at least one more. I... I Kind of do. I have okay. some some sad, scary movies. It's up to but you, yeah, I don't, I don't really have any horror movies. I do have a, a science fiction movie on All my right. list, though. I have two science fiction films on my list. Uh, one of them is THX eleven thirty eight. Okay, also on my the, list. The, the George Lucas film. Um, also on my list. Also amazing. Yeah, uh, we uh, we went through an entire podcast called Episode Zero, where we went through everything that influenced uh, Star Wars, and we kind of were examining George Lucas as a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, and uh, we found, uh, and this this is something that that I observed about his work is that uh, all of his films, with the exception of THX eleven thirty eight, take place in the past. Yeah, uh, he Rick he's, and Graffiti, the recent past, Star Wars, the distant, 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 ancient mythological past. Yeah, and uh, yeah. the past, in the the estimation of George Lucas, is for the most part a, a rosy place mm-hmm. where heroes triumph mm-hmm. and, uh, and villains and, are easily categorizable, mm-hmm. at least. Exactly, and, you know, uh, like they're there, but you, they're, they can be defeated. Now you can yeah. say that, uh, but, but what about those prequels? Those are about you know the, the rise of evil. Well, are they really? Because Darth Vader is actually kind of a beloved character. Mm-hmm. I think in sort of catering to the Darth Vader story, he was showing mm. 
a romanticized exactly. version of this villain. Uh, n- n- not the rise of a hero, but the rise of the audience's hero. And, the rise uh, of an, turning him into an anti-hero, I think, is yeah, something kind go. of... Yeah. Kind of re- some would say, uh, re- redeem him or lionize yeah. the, the, very, the Darth Vader character. So it, it's, a very, it's very much like his version of, like, we're going to do like in one of those old... Almost almost Shakespearean, not nearly mm. as good, but, uh, you know, <laughs> but basically like, hey, let's, let's, but, do the, but, let's do the full history of this one... I, uh, this one asshole who ran things for a while. I, uh, I agree with you. The Star Wars prequels are not as good as Shakespeare. I, think we, um, I would hope we can all agree on yeah, that. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. Uh, THX 1138 takes place in the future, on, on Earth, when uh, humanity has been sort of emotionally deadened. And they're, uh, not, they don't have names. They're not encouraged to have emotions or relationships. Uh, it's very, very influenced by uh, 1984. Uh, it's very, very influenced by Brave New World. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think more Brave New World than 1984 in, okay. in sort of the, the way social constructs have been uh, mutated to fit uh, a, a machine mm-hmm. and a machine-like well, existence. He's also very interested in the opiates of the masses and how mm. people are, are keeping themselves sated through yeah, and, uh, uh, through drugs through through uh, and, and also through the appearance of religion without actually any of the there's, death. Yeah, there's like... The iconography of religion, and there's even the iconography of uh, pop psychology, yeah. and how there's all uh, psychology is being reduced to uh, sort of these video screens that give you simple platitudes. What is Instagram if you're not thumbing through <laughs> a screen looking for simple platitudes or you know the inspirational uh, apps precious. and that kind of thing? Oh, I mean, he, he predicted you're not that. Wrong. You're not wrong. So, uh, and I, I got the, the notion that George Lucas was actually incredibly cynical about the future. He didn't want to look ahead because he saw nothing but bad things. Yeah. And uh, THX 1138 is the evidence of that uh, and how uh, we are kind of doomed. Mm. So it, it makes sense that he wants to keep on making films that are set in the past when things seem kind of simpler. Uh, Star Wars is not only set in the past, but it's very much about his own past. It's uh, mm-hmm. George Lucas' personal nostalgia. Yeah, of, about um, growing the, up with the, simplified the, the, the sci-fi types, tales. Yeah, the yeah. types of science fiction movies that he watched when he was young, just trying yeah. to recreate that on a larger scale. And through the eyes of a child, so it's mm. as cool as a child yeah. thought they ever were. Yeah. But now and, adults can see it too. And then we get uh, American Graffiti, which is very uh, halcyon and warm, but also uh, a little bit wistful because it's about a bygone era. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, as we, the further we get from the past and the more we live in the present the sadder we become. And I'd really, really be interested to see uh, George Lucas make a film set in the present. I, know. Uh, what, I have this, I have this fantasy that uh, like, because George Lucas still, still healthy. And I hope he will live for a very, very long time, mm. but one day he will no longer be with us. And I have this fantasy that like, it will be revealed that this entire time he's been making movies. And there's well, like a several feature films like, that are just in a vault. It's like the Prince vault where Prince, yeah. Prince evidently uh, <laughs> would wander around his house with recorders running all yeah. the time. Like audio record, like Mike is his whole home was mic'd. Yeah. And just in case like inspiration struck, he could just sing out wherever yeah. he is in his house and it would be recorded somewhere. Yeah. So like that, evidently all of, those... all, all of those and like all of the songs he's put together have been compiled into a record and put yeah. in a big safe somewhere. Yeah. And they're going to be released like 20 Someday. or 30 some, years some after his death. Yeah. Um, I, I heard this one. Uh, there was this one story in the onion because everyone's like really curious. Prince is one of the greatest musical geniuses of our generation and or I guess the previous generation, but um, or the new power generation, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> thank you. You're quite welcome. But uh, but there is there was a joke in the onion that made me laugh, which is like uh, we've we've discovered that every single song in Prince's unreleased vault is like 
a cover of scenes from an Italian restaurant from Billy Joel. Like, every single one. It's all just different variations on that one song. And, uh, oh, that's funny. But but regardless, George Lucas like started off with some like really potent things to say, and I think he got a little trapped in Star Wars. And it's a it's a real shame because I think when you look at THX one one three eight, you see someone who's like really he's really fierce minded. Mm-hmm. And he's working with a very low budget here, and he's getting so much out of it. Like there's been a remixed version with new with, special effects, but it's new. still mostly pretty cheap. The only yeah. thing that's like clearly they spent some money on this is there's a bit where they're kind of escaping this underground society, and they're like Morlocks in this in the mm-hmm. sewers, and no. those are CGI now, and they look better than they used to. I can't really complain about that too much. But uh, for the most part, you look at this and you'll see like, oh, this is how you do it cheap. This is how you can make like a really epic thing on the cheap. Mm. And I see so much innovation here and I see so much. And yeah, some of the sentiment is a little naive. He's young and angry and growing up in a really tumultuous time. And mm. you can see that in the text, but it's also really genuine. And I think the cast is really making the most of it. Donald Pleasance is killing it in this film. <laughs> yeah, He well, really, he's not in it much, but he steals every mm. single moment he's in. He's fantastic. Um, Robert Duvall is fantastic. Like it's, it's a, I had not seen this in its entirety. Until I think we did um, mm. that episode of uh, episode zero. And I was just like, I really feel like I was reintroduced to George Lucas. And yeah, we the, get so uh, used to Star Wars and we forget like he had a more complete vision mm. of the world than Star Wars represents. And when you see his, all of his work together, you really start to appreciate Star Wars on a different level. Start to appreciate American Graffiti on a different level. And it's very easy to appreciate just how raw well, THX 1138 it, is. It, it allows you to see uh, George Lucas, who is seen as this sort of pop figure who, yeah. who changed pop filmmaking and merchandising and toys and the way marketing works and uh, as it relates to film. You actually get to see him as as an artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, somebody who really was of, of the same generation of, of as a Spielberg or as a Coppola or as a Scorsese who was really interested in making interesting art yeah. and yeah was locked into the commercial box and yeah. i would love to know how much he resented that throughout his mm-hmm. life if he ever you know came to a point where it's like i wish star wars was gone and you know what he sold yeah. it he did he, he, he sold it he got rid of it he called it a divorce he just didn't want anything to do with it anymore yeah. and he gave all the money to charity you know what which, which i admire yeah, him he, right? he got billions of dollars for that and he gave it all away he said yep. i have enough money I, I have a lot of respect for George anymore. Lucas. Yeah. I really do. I, I don't. So as, I don't like a, every movie he's ever done, but I have a lot of respect no, for him. No, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not a, a Star Wars fanatic, but I admire George Lucas a little bit more as a person. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, THX 1138 is a big reason why. Yeah. Uh, well, with with that, you're actually like I'm actually like ahead of you because that's mm-hmm. also on my list. So why don't you do the next one too? Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. What do I want to talk about next? Um, I'll do my other science fiction film, and that's Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange. There you go. Uh, which also takes place in the future and is also incredibly pessimistic about the future. Um, Just pessimistic in general, really. It's, well, yeah. It, it's uh, A Clockwork Orange uh, has has unfortunately been sort of latched into by uh, like a, a certain hipster audience that really admire Alex DeLarge, the character played by Malcolm McDowell. Yeah. When he's not meant to be... Uh, He's a monster. And he's like the monster. He is yeah. unredeemable. Yeah. He is evil, and for he lack knows, of a better term. And he and knows uh, it, and he has no interest in changing whatsoever. No, not, not, not a second. And yeah. 
I was thinking about it. I don't think the film works unless he's really funny. You have to be able yeah. to find this guy appealing as a movie character, mm-hmm. not as a, a person, because he's, he's, he he's is been, a he'd just be unwatchable. Yeah, yeah. It, it would just be like it would just be like one shade of like, like maniac. Or it, something, it'd be like you know? a, a two and a half hour version of Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Yeah, you know? it's, like, uh, it's yeah. so. Uh, it's kind he's, of unfortunate he's got this that rock star quality. Like he just got yeah, it all from it, Mick Jagger, you know, it, it's kind of unfortunate that he needs to have that rock star quality because mm-hmm. that does invite some unsavory interpretations of the character. Yeah. But I think in so doing Kubrick is a pointing out that, uh, morality will fall away in the future mm-hmm. that we're constructing a world where we can just raise these amoral figures, but he is also dealing with a much uh, more profound question. And that's the problem of evil. Uh, what does a society do with evil? Uh, how do we deal with criminals? And you know, as, as much as we and the film is actually you know, very pessimistic about prison reform and the notion of uh, you know punishment and reward as part of the, so- the society we live in, uh, he is saying uh, Kubrick that the prison system is broken mm. because it cannot. It's not prepared to deal with someone who is as profoundly wicked mm-hmm. as Alex is. Yeah. Uh, this is not a, a world that's sort of set up to teach someone morals. All it does is repeat a lot of platitudes. And I think uh, one one of the more telling scenes in the movie is when he's finally uh, caught for a horrendous crime and sent to prison. Yeah. Uh, they're saying, well, now you're in prison. Now you get to be reformed. We're going to send you to church mm-hmm. and mere exposure to certain a- facets of uh, Christian iconography are supposed to cure him of his mm. desire to do harm. But the thing is, is that he's not easily manipulated mm. or or turned. And when you give him well, the he's, Bible, he's immediately going to yeah, glom onto the, the Old Testament shit that is like very well, prurient the, and violent and, and sexual. And, 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 and there's just going to get something out of that. There's a, uh, a flashback scene where he's reading the Bible yeah. where uh, he is envisioning uh, Christ carrying the cross right before the crucifixion. He's you know being whipped and he's got the, the crown of thorns and he imagines himself as the Roman centurion doing the whipping. Yeah. That's where his mind is. Yeah. Uh, I, I really, really like a clockwork orange. I, I kind of enjoy its pessimism. It's, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to recommend in some ways. Well, it's, it's hard to recommend because that are ridiculously brutal. There's a home yeah. invasion sequence at the beginning, which, a home is, inv- which is a hard yeah. watch. It's yeah, a hard watch, just you know, it, it, he commits really horrendous acts of violence. Yeah, he commits really uh, awful crimes, and he has this whole his gang of uh, of, of droogs, He calls mm-hmm. them. Uh, it, it's taken from the novel by Anthony Burgess, and uh, Anthony Burgess invented his own sort of future slang yeah. in the book. In fact, I think the book is in dialect, so it's actually really difficult to read. It, it, uh, it, it, it reads uh, okay. I think okay. It, it, it's it's. Uh, you were immersed in it and everything. The, the, I feel like the, the syntax of the language is always clear. Like, this is an insult. Mm. This is kind of what this yeah. means. I've read it. It's, a, it's, a, it a lot, and a lot of it comes from, uh, from yeah. Russian. Yeah. So I think there's sort of an implication that um, this might be sort of a, a dark vision as to what would happen if, like, the Soviet way of thinking had sort of actually mm. infiltrated the rest of the world. Mm. Uh, what year was the book published? I think it was late. I, si- I think it was like sixty. Actually, let me double check maybe. that. Film came out in seventy one, but uh, um, yeah, uh, Kubrick didn't want to sugarcoat it. He wanted to include all of that mm. violence, and I think he sixty two. Sixty two. It, it had already been around for a while. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he he really. Wa- I feel like the the violence. I hate to be that guy, but the violence does feel uh, very necessary. We have to have mm-hmm. to see how sort of brutal it is. But at the same time, I don't want to say that it's 
fun at all, especially not that home invasion sequence, which mm. is just it's difficult to no, stomach. It's, it's, home it's electrifying, sequence. but yeah. you, when, if you're being electrified, you might be dying. You know, so there's like a danger yeah. to it. Well, and, and it's this, a dangerous film in a lot of ways. It really raises and, a lot of difficult questions. But when it comes to yeah. uh, the film's conclusion, uh, yeah. where uh, it arguably uh, set, makes the point that evil is actually kind of important for other institutions to uh, prop up as some sort of cause. Mm. That it's, uh, you know, something that we can sort of fight against, but never really truly want to destroy. Mm -hmm. I I think in giving us kind of uh, showing us all of the wickedness that kind of cements that point a little bit. Well, it's interesting because in the book, Mm. um, the ending is very different. And it's it's almost like crime and punishment. Like you get that ending where it's just sort of like, well, maybe mm. this guy wasn't completely irredeemable. Maybe there's more more to it or whatever. It's a happy ending, end, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Uh, and uh, apparently that 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 chapter was never published in America because American publishers were just like, don't buy it. Just gonna <laughs> okay. end it right here. Yeah. And apparently that that was the version Kubrick read, <laughs> and so oh, he wow, never really okay. knew about the other <laughs> the other chapter, and so uh, he never really did it. But. Um, but apparently Kubrick didn't like that ending anyway. So, uh, but yeah, it's it's a very bitter, mean movie. But it it's got it's got a point to make, yeah. And it's got a it's got a variety of excellent points to make, and a lot of difficult questions about uh, even even things like rehabilitation or the uh, <laughs> the way that. The, the power of cinema as well. There's that whole sequence where mm-hmm. uh, he's being rehabilitated using this weird method where his eyes are kept open mm-hmm. and he's forced to watch all the shocking imagery. Uh, on, but, on film. On film. In a theater. Yeah. yeah, and the whole idea is you're going to see all of this and it's going to desensitize you to it. You're not going to want to do this anymore. And he's fine with it for a while, but it's only when, because he also happens to be a classical music fan, he does have a refined sense of taste, that they combine Beethoven with all of these atrocities that he's like, no, that's not cool. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately when he has this thing where like, if he sees something violent or thinks something violent, he has this negative physical reaction, but it also has that reaction to Beethoven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, also, as, it ruins yeah, everything. Like a, a, a yeah. Side effect of all this. Yeah. So that, that kind of media manipulation has unfortunate side effects, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's great. It didn't make my list just because I don't really enjoy watching it very much. It, it is a difficult you know? set. Yeah. It's, it's very good. It's one of I those just... films that I was able to watch, you know, over and over again in my twenties when I was trying to shock myself a yeah. lot, and, you know, going, and the soundtrack going through I a lot of a lot extreme, of great, you know, a lot of electronic go, on it. going through a lot of extreme cinema yeah. at the time, and this is definitely an example of extreme cinema. Yeah, uh, so I have seen it a lot. Sure, and I have too. I yeah. just, I, I don't know. I just, it's also a movie that I feel its legacy is pretty secure, and it, we didn't, I, I didn't need to cement it here. Okay, so I, because I was able to find room for other movies, I was like, yeah, I'll leave out Clockwork Orange, maybe Whitney will use it, and and you did, I did. Here I am, and I, but I did find room. Hmm. Uh, for another uh, story about uh, uh, just evil, the hmm. evils of youth and hmm. uh, the way that uh, really creative British people have of punishing them for it, and that is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> uh, a horror story, this, if ever there was what, one, just the tone is um, off. Uh, what, what I find really curious about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory is yeah. how celebrated it is as this sort of like warm, nostalgic childhood classic. Mm-hmm. 
Roald Dahl is a bitter author. Oh, and yeah. this is a bitter movie. Yeah, I think it was Roald Dahl. I think it might have been Roald Dahl himself who said the only people he hates more than kids are adults. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That's yeah. it. He just he was not he was not a sentimental a, a, person. A bit of a misanthrope. Yeah, not a sentimental person. Even mm. even his best and loveliest and most warm-hearted stories, I'm thinking Matilda in particular, mm. have genuine cruelty in them and genuine yeah. violence and torture and an absolute absolutely cynical approach to parenting just because someone's biological parent does not mean you're a good person that mm. you should be this is not something that was traditional in mm. children's books in the in the 80s um and uh and also of schools mm. which were also full of monsters yep. in in the class and teaching the class um but in any case i think it's interesting to me that Roald Dahl really didn't like this movie because i feel as though even though this book really this movie really changes a few things from the book no, rather but, dramatically. Rather yeah. dramatically. I feel like the changes are mostly good. Mm. And I also feel is that it captures the tone better than some of the other Roald Dahl adaptations have. Uh-huh. Um, Roald Dahl's stories are often about this extreme dichotomy between um, innocence and evil. And Willy Wonka exists in this weird nebulous place between the two. Yeah. Where on one hand, he is very pure. Mm. He's a, he believes in chocolate and wonder and feeding the hungry, and he just he's a very very nat very naturally he's he's a god. Yeah. Uh, but if you piss him off, he will fuck your shit up, <laughs> and he don't he, he don't care if you're a kid either. Uh-huh. Um, so y- you know the story, or at least I imagine you do. Willy Wonka has this famously magical chocolate factory, but he's a recluse, and he invites a group of five children. Five, right? Um. Five children: Charlie, Veruca, Augustus, Mike TV, um, I think Violet, Violet Beauregard, yeah. and the Blueberry Girl. That's least, that is Violet Beauregard. She's turning Violet. Violet. Oh yeah, I guess you're yeah, right. Yeah. I think it's fine. Who, who's the who's the the spoiled kid? Veruca Salt. That was that was Veruca. Okay. Yeah. Um. Anyway. He invites he he hides these golden tickets inside chocolate bars and it's a great scheme to buy people mm. to get people to buy candy. People are buying it by the truckload, and uh, one of the tickets ends up with an impoverished young boy named Charlie who happens to live down the street from the chocolate factory. Yeah, um, all the kids are invited to the chocolate factory, but it turns out all of the other children have an extreme character defect. Usually, something you can blame the parents for. At least that's what the, the movie does. Um, things like watches way too much TV, mm. chews way too much gum. Yeah. Is cons- is incredibly spoiled, and in the case of Augustus Loop, he's fat. I always thought that he's, was a cheap shot, but whatever. The uh, it, it's not it's not that he's fat; it's that he is preoccupied with overeating. Yeah, it's an it's, it's, it's an obsession. But regardless, do, do we do we really need more movies taking cheap shots at kids who are overweight? No, it's not fair. no, we don't. Yeah, so. it's 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 hard enough as it is. So mm-hmm. that one always struck me as a little unnecessary, but whatever. Um. Anyway. They go through the chocolate factory and every single room that they go into, it, there's some sort of test, basically. Mm. <laughs> As though Willy Wonka like researched them ahead of time. Like, okay, well, this one's really loves gum. So I'm going to put her in like a situation where if she can control herself around a new kind of gum and she makes it out of that alive, she can own the chocolate factory. Mm. Uh, and, of course, she does not. You know, and she's, she becomes a victim of her own character defects. Um, the book is very good. Uh, Charlie is not a character in it. He's he's a presence. He's an excuse to go from point A to point B. Well, and I the, like that in the, the movie book, they the, give him more to do. The book uh, 
is really reminiscent of Dickens. Mm-hmm. And I think Roald Dahl was a big Dickens fan, oh, yeah. uh, especially in terms of sort of his view of uh, institutions for children and how corrupt yeah. they are. That's yeah. a big, a big part of Dickens as well. Yeah. Um, uh, Charlie is given more to do. I don't like the characterization of Charlie in mm. the seventies movie. Oh yeah. If you could take the, the characterization of Charlie as he was depicted uh, from the Tim Burton film, Charlie and, the and, and Charlie in the chocolate factory yeah. and put that character in the seventies film, mm. I think it would improve the seventies. I, I won't fight you too hard mm. on that. But what I do like is that we show that Charlie is not a perfect human being. Mm. Um, one could even argue that what's the first thing he, he gets the golden ticket because he finds money. And rather than give it to his impoverished family, he buys chocolate for himself. And he feels terrible about he, it. He feels yeah. terrible about it, and that's fine. And listen, he's a kid. I'm not going to begrudge him to it, but it's a, it certainly represents a lack of impulse control. <laughs> yeah. And indeed, he has an opportunity in Wonka's factory to test his impulse control, and he nearly fails that test and nearly dies. Mm. I like that. I also like this addition of the subplot where all of the kids are being approached by Wonka's biggest rival, Slugworth, mm. to basically perform industrial sabotage, not sabotage, industrial espionage for him. Mm. And at the end, what gets Charlie the Chocolate Factory isn't just that he made it to the end, it's that he resisted the capitalistic corruption offered to him by Horace Slugworth. This is all the incredible machinations of Willy Wonka testing the moral character of children. And that's a very smart, very, very wicked in a lot of ways. It's a very dastardly film, uh, but it's a very, it's a, it's a clever update of a lot of the old Aesop's fables kind of vibes. This is, what is this if not a modern Hansel and Gretel? Mm. Um, and because of that, because it's based on that kind of fantasy, Aesop's fables, or not Aesop's fables, uh, Grimm's fairy tales, that's mm. what I was thinking of, Grimm's fairy tales, uh, they're evil. <laughs> There's some <laughs> fucked up shit in those. Like, those are horror stories for kids, a lot of them, and I think Roald Dahl leaned into that. Mm. And I think the fact that, excuse me, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, in particular this version, especially with the uh, There's No Earthly Way of Knowing sequence where you're seeing chickens get their yeah, heads cut yeah. off, and you're like, holy shit, what the fuck is going on? Um, he knows he's making a horror story for kids. Mm. It's partly a fantasy. Part of it sounds cool, but mostly it's a horror story for kids. And I admire that. And I think that these filmmakers understood that more than Tim Burton did. That's for sure. And yeah. I think I think they understand that kids, a lot of the well, best kids entertainment don't, don't floats between nightmares and fantasy. The Tim Burton film is is just pretty aggressively awful. It's, yeah, there's it's a few a things I like film. about it, but there's, it's not good. There's yeah. details about it I yeah. like, but yeah, I, yeah. It, it's a pretty bad movie. Yeah. So yeah, I, I was saying, you know, complimenting the film for getting Charlie was right. It Charlie, Freddie Highmore, who Freddie Highmore, yeah, he's Fred, good. Ch- yeah. Charlie's sort of a non-entity in that, but he he strikes me as a, being a little bit more like Oliver Twist beatific. Well, they in give that him movie. they give him more of like an arc at the end. He disappears in the middle, mm. but at the end they throw a little twist when he's offered the chocolate factory. They they go in a slightly different direction. Yeah, and I th- I like what that says for Charlie's character. I don't think it does the film's pacing any favors, mm. um, and I don't think it was really necessary, or at least they didn't have to handle it the way that they did by giving like Wonka this weird backstory that we didn't need at all. Right. Um, but there's there's some ideas in that mm-hmm. one. I don't, I don't hate that movie, but in any case, I think the original is. Again, it's people like, oh, this was a children's movie. Yeah, children's movies used to be really fucked up. And I think (laughs) Gene Wilder is just absolute perfection Mm. here. And I think he knows exactly what he's doing. And he's he's a genius. And I love him. And I love this movie. He flaws and all. I think they're all part of the tapestry that make it great, ironically. So uh, what do you got next? Um, I don't have any uh, films that are okay for kids, but I do Mm -hmm. have a film that is about kids. And that's uh, Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout. I haven't seen Walkabout. 
Oh, Walkabout is quite good. Okay. Uh, Walkabout, <laughs> Walkabout uh, is about uh, two two young kids. Uh, there's a, a young boy who's maybe about uh, eight, and his older sister, Jenny Gutter, is a teenager. Mm. And uh, they're driven out to the outback of Australia uh, by their father who perhaps aims to kill them. Uh, he, War Grimm's fairy tales. Okay, he fires a gun at them. He's trying yeah. to murder them, and they they flee into the outback, and uh, they fall into the company of of uh, an Aboriginal teenager, mm. uh, played by David Gulpilil. Gulpililil is his name. Okay, and he doesn't speak their language, but he kind of understands what they need, and they begin. Uh, sort of living together, learning to communicate in the ways they can, uh, trying to uh, provide for each other as best they can. And he is trying to teach them sort of how to fend for themselves. And in so doing, he ends up sort of falling in love with the Jenny Gutter character, mm. the, the Aboriginal. And the utter breakdown of communication <laughs> between the two of them leads to some pretty tragic uh, interactions between the characters. We also see that the two uh, white kids are find themselves naturally falling into a space where they keep on asking more and more of the native to the point mm. where they're trying they're trying to get him to provide for them. So there's a them. little bit of uh, Race like proto racism, uh, kind of lurking beneath a lot of what's going on in Walkabout. Uh, it's a, a film in that that is. It starts really tragic. It moves into something that is really, really kind of almost placid uh, and beatific in living out purely in the outback and learning to sort of fend for yourselves, but has no interest in uh, putting forth any kind of uh, optimism about mm. that type of living. Mm. Um, I don't want to give away too many details of the plot, and a lot of it is just sort of uh, learning to live out in the outback. But uh, damn, is this one affecting. Hmm. Uh, especially if you, if, if you, like I did, saw it when you were around like age 20, you're not too much older than the characters, and you're seeing your, a lot of yourself in this. Uh, and understanding how the communication breakdown is working and how you're maybe not yet sophisticated enough, but you're just sophisticated enough to see uh, how you could improve that situation. Oh, I could. Oh, but I couldn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, that, that type of pessimism and that kind of encroaching fascism and the, the fight between, and this is uh, something that's distinctly Australian, mm. the fight between uh, modernity mm. and the overwhelming crushing power of the natural world mm-hmm. within the country of Australia uh, are constantly going to be fighting one another. Okay. Um, well, it sounds uh, very good. I dig it. I dig it a lot. All right. I like Nicholas Rogue as a director. Mm. Um, 
I haven't seen enough Nicholas Rogue movies. He did. Uh, d- Nicholas Rogue did don't, uh, performance with uh, Mick Jagger. Did Don't Look Now, which is a really mm. notable uh, kind yeah, of. He did The Witches. Didn't si- he? Uh, he he did. He did the nineteen ninety version which of The Witches. Which is a really good movie. Oh, it's an okay movie. I like that um, movie a lot. I think you're you're, you're uh, harsh on it. But I like The Witches in The Witches. Ah. The boy can be cut from The Witches. The well, that's why you're rooting such, for The Witches. Yeah, yeah the, the, the boy is like my, uh, talking about Charlie being a non-entity. Mm. The boy in The Witches is even yeah. less. My, so. my problem with The Witches is uh, mm. they they added a mega happy ending and I just don't think he needed it but uh, we're going yeah, which, like which is weird for a, uh, a director like Nicholas Rogue because yeah. he did he did walk about performance doesn't end well uh, <laughs> don't look now has a pretty notorious ending oh yeah um, in a good way that movie's yeah. amazing yeah. Uh, the man, he also did the man who fell to earth uh, yes. which is amazing al- also, also doesn't really yeah. end well for that oh, the main character yeah, and one of the great Bowie performances oh, oh my god I didn't see his film bad timing I've heard good things about that, one, that one, one but yeah. yeah but yeah then he did the witches which is like him and Amblin mode. I feel he feels like director. Eh, one, one, one. one for the kids, you know. I, I guess you know. Can't, can't really begrudge him. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so you like? Uh, so I, I like I like miserable Australian movies. Okay, we're, we're gonna we're gonna have more miserable Australian movies later on. Too, uh, we're gonna have so, more miserable yeah. Australian movies right now okay. because that's a perfect segue to Wake and Fright. <laughs> <laughs> Wake and Fright is my number one. Oh my god. Okay. Well, I was okay. All right. all right, I was going to save it and be the big reveal, but Devils was my number one. So, oh well, okay, okay. So we just screwed all of this up, but we'll we'll revisit them in a all minute. Right. But um, Wake and Fright mm. is a film by Ted Kotcheff, and Ted Kotcheff has had one of the weirder careers. <laughs> just just he made a little bit of everything. Mm. He did what he did like North Dallas Forty, uh, and he did uh, we- First Blood and Weekend at Bernie's and Weekend at Bernie's, <laughs> which holds up surprisingly well if you don't mind that it's ghoulish as fuck. Um, Ted Kotcheff is an interesting filmmaker, I, and we, I, Weekend at Bernie's is a fun premise. It's about playing with a dead body. It is oh yeah, you it know, it's macabre, it's and so I, fun. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> Ted well, Kotcheff is still alive too, at age ninety. I didn't know that. that's yeah. great. Good for him. Um, well, in any case, Wake and Fright is a truly bleak piece of filmmaking, and. It's a movie that I didn't particularly like watching, but it stuck with me for so long, I can't deny its power. Oh, golly, yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it is sweaty and uncomfortable. Oh, sweaty is the right word Sweat, for it. You will, sweaty. you will need a shower after you watch yeah. it, and not in a good way. Yeah, if, if it's um, a cold day, you're going to feel oof. overheated watching Wake and Fright. So Wake and Fright uh, tells the story of a, uh, a young school teacher in Australia, and mm. it, it's on his holiday, and he's going to, I think he's going to visit his girlfriend. <laughs> Uh, in Sydney or some other big city, mm. but he has like a layover in this just middle of nowhere town. Literally middle of nowhere. Yeah, There's just absolute the, the desolate. Open, the opening yeah. shot is uh, this wide open desert scape, a uh, train track running through the middle of it, mm. and two buildings. Yeah. The school where he works and the train station. Yeah, and he's going to end up in a place more miserable than that. Uh so he ends up going to a place called the Bundanyaba, aka the Yaba. Mm. And while he is there, and he's just he's just on vacation, mm. and everything there is just booze and, and testosterone yeah. and gambling. And so he decides to gamble and decides to gamble some more. And finally, he ends up gambling his whole fucking life away in the middle of fucking nowhere, uh, and he can't afford to leave. He can't afford to leave anymore. Mm. And now he's stuck here, and he doesn't know what to do, and he doesn't know how to survive every single person who is in this town and who isn't just passing through is 
also equally transformed into some kind of hell beast. I don't know what the exactly Donald Pleasance is doing in this movie, <laughs> but I do know it's scary as hell. He, he's... He's what a, is he? He's is a he, human being, but he's also kind of a demon. Yes, uh, yeah, he's he's yeah. some kind of wretched beast out of well, the out of the the inferno here. And and, and what and what he and the other characters uh, in in the movie try to do are essentially pull him into hell. Yeah. Uh, and that is this sort of orgy of drink and gambling. And, orgy and... makes it sound like it's fun. Like it never looks fun. <laughs> There's no point in here where it looks like he's having a good time. Mm. It's just the beer is a slightly colder than it is outside, uh, and the gambling is a brief distraction. Have you ever uh, have you ever taken a drink to the beach and you get like wet sand in it? Yes. And you drink the wet sand drink. That's what watching Wake and Fright is I feel like. like. You're it's, not supposed to do that. It's like drinking sand beer. Okay. Uh, just there, there's, it's it's intoxicating you, but it's also just like filling your gut with grit. It's just awful and unpleasant. Yeah. And uh, it, there's a, a rather notorious scene where uh, he has taken uh, kangaroo hunting. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, they didn't murder any kangaroos specifically for the purpose of this film, but mm-hmm. you do get to see. A kangaroo uh, so, some, carcass. So yeah, some yeah. Uh, some animals uh, looking very explicitly like they're being harmed. So if, if you're sensitive yeah. to that, just and, be warned. Yeah, there's a lot of brutality in the, mm. in the films we're recommending in 1971. Even in the family film mm. I recommended, there was a chicken with its head being cut off. Mm. Uh, different time. Different time. Different time. Uh, I don't know if, if these films would have gotten away with it. Or definitely they would be there's, way more you know, notorious. You know, but yeah, there is some hypocrisy to that. You won't. You don't want to watch a film of a chicken getting its head cut off, but you'll get a chicken sandwich. Like, well, I don't. I don't want to watch the part where it well, dies. Yeah. I just want to eat its carcass once it's dead. And, and you know what? Hmm? Touche. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. Touche. Hmm. Um, in any case, Wake and Fright is one of the most. Again, it's hard to think of adjectives for the film that accurately capture it without making it sound more fun than it is. Like the one of the words I want to use is sleazy, but sleazy implies a certain form of like, like enjoyment. Enter- entertaining yeah, furries. Like, you use the word orgy. Yeah. Orgy is not right either. <laughs> no. It's just sweaty and gross. And it's <laughs> there's something to be said for you you were talking about in a clockwork orange, about how that's a film that's about amorality mm. uh, as well, and or at least moral degradation. But in order to make it palatable, mm. Alex DeLarge is played with a lot of charisma by uh, Malcolm McDowell. Uh, there is no charisma in this film. This is one of those rare films that I think portrays evil or vice or whatever you want to call mm. it uh, as alluring. It captures you without ever making it seem fun. Yeah, I think it's hard to pull off. And I think Wake and Fright is one of the great films about moral decay. Uh, mm. And um, I, I I can't say I love it, but I admire it. It's certainly intensely effective. Mm. Uh, and if that sounds like something you would be even remotely interested in, I highly recommend you check it out. Mm. Uh, so, all right, let's move on. What's your What's right. your next pick? Um, you know that Shaft is one bad. Shut, shut your mouth, okay. Whitney. No, I'm going to talk about Shaft. Please do because yeah. this this almost made my list. This okay, <laughs> I, I love the original Shaft a lot. Uh, director Gordon Parks. Uh, didn't like that Shaft was called a black exploitation movie. Yeah, black exploitation was a, a wave of, uh, of films from like a very brief period, from like the late sixties to the mid seventies, uh, where technically didn't officially die out until the mid eighties, but it was it, yeah, it, it would, petered out. 
I feel like by the time Reedy Ray Moore was in movies, it's like we're we're kind of satirizing the whole notion now. Yeah, but it's still valid. Um, I think I think the last of, some would argue that the last official one was Barry Gordy's The Last Drag, which is admittedly a great movie. Mm-hmm. Others would argue that original Gangsta's is officially the last gasp, but by the by that point I think it's retro. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh yeah, that that was sort of sort of like a throwback. That's yeah. neo black exploitation, if you will. But yeah. um it was uh a big wave of uh, films of, about black characters set in black neighborhoods. Uh, mm-hmm. Black heroes. Black heroes. About uh, t- the black experience. To varying made, degrees. Often made by white directors, but... Uh, True, uh, but to but, varying degrees. But Gordon Parks, not a white man, uh, didn't want Shaft to be uh, sort of lumped in with those types of movies because he felt that those movies were, well, exploitation, that mm-hmm. they were... Uh, not really well thought out that they were about uh, really broad kind of heroes that sort of did sex and violence. A lot of anti-heroes. Yeah, a lot of anti-heroes as well. Shaft, uh, he felt, uh, as played by Richard Roundtree. Really well. He's so good. In in one of cinema's most iconic roles. Mm -hmm. uh, Only was only heroic, noble and, uh, and decent. Yeah. He He was a hero. He'd beat a guy up. Yeah, but the guy deserved but, it. But he was a hero, and what he what uh, Gordon Parks said, uh, said he was trying to do, uh, and I, I'm paraphrasing, was he he wanted to sort of have a a, a black dignified hero yeah. that did good things for the community, uh, and not in a corny sort of way, just have yeah. sort of a decent guy. And well, he there, felt there that, was no shortage of sort of white mm, heroes in yeah. the sort of James Bond category, and that's not a one to one parallel with Shaft in any by any means. Mm. But James Bond is sort of exalted. Look at this paragon of masculinity and heroism mm. and goodness and they wanted to do a version of similar to that mm-hmm. and i think with the original shaft in particular i haven't seen all the sequels um but i think with the original shaft they do such a good job and so much of it is just the character work mm. um shaft in this original film is he's tough mm. I, I wouldn't want to piss him off who would uh but he's also really decent and he's mm. impressively progressive Oh, yeah. for, for the era, uh, like he's got he's got like gay friends, and it's like totally like uh, I think it's openly discussed, and that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, there's a scene where uh, where he has a conversation with uh, yeah with a queer friend of his, and he mm-hmm. is just totally okay with that. Yeah, which is weird because when Tim Story got around to doing the most recent Shaft, they decided that uh, mm-hmm. the the previous Shafts would be like you know crotchety old men mm-hmm. who didn't understand progressive shit, and I'm like. The original Shaft is more progressive than most of the movies we're talking uh, about now, um, but uh, yeah, it's it's a, he's a private detective, yeah, in uh, in Harlem, and he is hired by a mobster uh, to rescue his daughter from Italian gangsters, mm. uh, which is just a solid crime story. <laughs> it's, it's, There's nothing wrong with it. It's just fine. It's, like, it's, it's a pretty. It's, uh, a, it's a good skeleton on which yeah, to put a movie. It, it's a pretty off the rack crime story, and it leads yeah. to uh, kind of the scenes you would expect from a, a, a typical crime movie: uh, find, finding the crime, escalating, seeing the bad throwing people are, out then, of windows, yeah, and then, yeah. and then eventually, like a big, uh, there's like a big action packed raid uh, at the end. The story isn't what matters in Shaft. Uh, the character of Shaft is what matters in Shaft, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Shaft is wealthy. He's uh, well-to-do. He's well-dressed. He's incredibly yeah. dignified. I don't know about wealthy, but he certainly yeah. isn't hurting, you know. Um, there was a little bit of criticism, because I think there's a, a plot point where hasn't he, hasn't he moved to, like, Greenwich Village? Uh, he Like, he came from Harlem, but he doesn't live there anymore. Mm. And I think there was, a, like, a, a bit where he, like, 
some people thought he should be going back and helping out Harlem. But I think mm-hmm. uh, it adds a little bit of ambivalence to the character that he you know, was able to grow up and move out. Mm-hmm. But in so doing, was he turning his back on his community? Yeah. Uh, that's something to discuss about Shaft. Anyway. I also think it's a bold choice. I think it's worth mm-hmm. remembering that the Shaft wasn't necessarily originally conceived as white. Mm-hmm. Or, he was originally conceived as white. Like the original mm-hmm. idea was that Shaft was going to be played by a white guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, they they did Jordan Parks did not want to do that, mm. and just the sheer, just that just that mm. change in casting completely changed the entire political outlook of the movie. Mm. And you would have had a pretty if if this were just some guy, this mm. were a Steve McQueen movie, mm. we would not be talking about it right now. It wouldn't no, have it wouldn't no. have any meat on its bones. It would have yeah. been a perfectly probably would have been a perfectly serviceable crime thriller, but. By making this about a hero who he's doing all the great hero things, but he's still mistreated on the streets of New York in the opening credits mm. just because of the color of his skin, yeah, uh, just adds an enormous level of context. Mm. And when you also add in the fact that this has easily the greatest theme song of all time, <laughs> uh, Academy Award winning best original song, the theme from Shaft, mm. as performed by Isaac Hayes, yeah, uh. It's one of the most badass things yeah. ever written. And mm. if... Can you imagine... Weird thing. Can you just imagine for one second that you had a theme song? What if everyone had a theme song? <laughs> what if everyone had a theme song and your theme song was the theme from, from Shaft? It was oh, that no, cool. I, my, Can you mine, imagine? Mine would be like a, a single sad kazoo played at the bottom of a Mine canyon. would be a Weird Al Yankovic polka. It just it would not be <laughs> cool. But like Shaft and, uh, and and Superfly, different movie, not as good. But like uh, Superfly had, has the greatest movie soundtrack of all time as far as I'm concerned. Mm. You want to hear the greatest movie soundtrack of all time? Put on the original Superfly. You're good. You're good for the evening. It's the mm. best. Uh, but the original theme from Shaft, it, it, it shows you just how powerful music can be and how it can elevate because if this movie just had a generic, un- completely forgettable score, it would still be very, very good. But that mm. song instantly makes Shaft an icon. Like, after the credits are over, he's an icon. Mm-hmm. And that is just, it's such a powerful bit of pop cinema. It just really is. Mm. And and just damn Roundtree's good. Yeah. Roundtree's so fucking great. Uh, I also really like the John Singleton version. I think that version's pretty badass. But um, yeah, how, how are the sequels? I don't think I've ever seen any of the sequels. All uh, the l- diminishing returns. Okay. Like, like the character is still so there's great. There's a Shaft's big score, and then, then Shaft goes to Shaft Africa. Shaft goes to Africa, yeah, yeah. Um, then Shaft, and then Shaft. Yeah. Uh, which are sequels, not remakes. Yeah. The Samuel Jackson Shaft is quite good. The Samuel Jackson Tim Story one is so so bad it's it's really one of the worst it's so bad it's such a bad motion picture so I, I believe it was uh alonzo duralde who described uh mm. shaft uh Timothy L. jackson mm-hmm. uh reprises his role from the, yeah. the john singleton movie yeah and now he's archie bunker yeah and when that, did that happen like he he's sort of like the Shaft is now like sort of the backward fuddy duddy. Yeah, you who's trying have... to say, no, it used to be better, man. You you wimpy kids these days need a little tough but... of toughness from the previous generation. You oh can't, God, it, like you can't it, it is a, such a disservice. A shaft. Yeah, it is su- such a disservice to the Richard Roundtree. The, the whole point of Shaft is that he's 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 ahead of the game. He's ahead of his time. Hmm. Uh, once you start making him behind the time, I don't know. I don't know what you're thinking. Yeah. I don't know what your plan was. Like I don't, I don't get it. Anyway, uh, moving on, moving on. What do we got next? Um, 
It's up, your turn next. So it is mine, and I want to talk. Okay, we're talking. We're talking about pop cinema. We're talking about a movie that uh, was made on a very low budget, but uh, also sort of created a career. Hmm. Uh, let's talk about Steven Spielberg's Duel. I haven't seen Steven Spielberg's. You've Duel. never seen Duel? No, I've never oh seen my Duel. god, it's so cool. Okay, so Duel. Um, Steven Spielberg. You know, like a lot of filmmakers, you know, started making movies in his backyard, mm. put together a demo reel, moved to Hollywood. And uh, he didn't start making movies right away. He started working in television and he started doing like some TV for hire and he very quickly made a name for himself. And um, he was discovered pretty quickly to be like this guy on the rise. Mm. The movie that shot him to prominence was a made for TV movie called Duel. It stars Dennis Weaver. Uh, he would probably, uh, uh, he was on Gunsmoke, mm. uh, but, uh, he was, uh, he was in uh, touch of evil. He's a, he's a middle-class boring guy on a long road trip. And while he's on the highway, he manages to just kind of piss off a fellow motorist. <laughs> That's it. There's a guy in a big truck. The truck is like really tall. And from his car's perspective he can never see inside all he can see is the guy's arm mm. so it's this giant truck and he pisses that guy off and that one little sin that one little tiny bit mm-hmm. of road rage or whatever you want to call it uh i think a lot of the great horror movies work this way one tiny sin gets paid back a million fold yeah yeah and that's what happens here a little bit a little bit of a road altercation and now this guy will destroy him this guy in this truck, he's going to run him off the road. He's going to chase him down. He's going to ram through buildings and shit. It's just this guy will stop at nothing to kill. Hmm. And there's no character. The villain has no character. The villain's a truck. The villain The villain, <laughs> The villain. villain is just an entity. Hmm. Because if you think about it, when you're driving along the road and you have any sort of emotion about the driving experience... You're not thinking about the deep, rich inner lives of the people driving the car. You're thinking that BMW is an asshole. <laughs> you know that BMW. That BMW cut me off. He like cut me off on the left as I was making a right turn. I can't fucking believe that guy. That guy is an asshole. That's it. Mm. And I'm sure the truck driver is thinking of all the same things. <laughs> and he hates Dennis Weaver so much. Mm. Uh, Spielberg does so much with such a limited budget here. Okay. And he manages to just take a truck and turn it into basically a kaiju. That's what it is. It's okay. just it's just ramming things. It's destroying things. And you can definitely see this sort of like as part of like the Mad Max tradition, even though Mad Max didn't exist yet. Mm-hmm. Um, this this sort of like the highway is a place for gladiators. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's just really intense. It's an intense motion picture. It's really it's really efficient. Um, it's another movie where like just look what you can do with the budget. Yeah, Look what you yeah. can do. Um, the movie was so successful that they shot a few extra scenes and released it internationally in cinemas. And from there on out, Spielberg did a little bit more TV after that, but was quickly moving on to stuff like Sugarland Express and Jaws. Mm. Uh, and um, yeah, this is this is the movie that made him. And much like THX 1138, which I would argue is a bit more thoughtful, uh-huh. Spielberg was much more interested in just I'm gonna I'm just gonna blow you away. I'm just gonna do this <laughs> exercise in suspense. It's gonna be awesome. There mm. is a um, um, I was at a screening of uh, I think it was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Okay, and there was a Q and A afterwards, 
And I think it was Vilmos Sigmund who was talking Still about uh, cinematography. Cinematographer, yeah. And he was talking about how Spielberg was kind of growing as a filmmaker. And he was talking about early on, um, he would be like, okay, well, who is telling this story? Hmm. Like, I know, is, is this story from like this person's perspective? Because that changes the kind of camera angles you want to use. And you can tell eventually Spielberg figured this out because E.T. is told from a child's perspective. There's no hmm. camera like lower than someone's, like an adult's waistline. Like it's yeah. always looking up. It's always recreating the point of view of a child. But like early on, he would say things like, well, I am. <laughs> he's just he's just flying by the seat of his pants and telling stories he thinks are cool, and yeah, he's able to pull it off here. And it's just it's one of the great popcorn low budget films, and I highly recommend okay. you check it out. Uh, what do you got um, next? We got you got three more. I got two more. Um, oh, why don't we go for the the cons- the super conservative film? We're going to talk about Dirty Harry. Um, really, I made your top ten. I I was torn about this. One. Okay, it's not a bad uh, movie. It's just it's interesting. You know what? Okay. Talk with Dirty Harry. It's not on my list. I no, take it off. Done. Fuck it. Godzilla versus Hedera. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. AKA Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. This is actually. This is the Godzilla message picture. Isn't this one an MST3K episode? I think it might have been. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's. That doesn't mean it's a bad movie. I just uh, think it's funny. Okay. Um, a monster made of toxic sludge mm-hmm. rises up out of human pollution. And it can't be killed, not even by a Godzilla. <laughs> like Godzilla fights Any it, Godzilla. But, it, but it turns Any in, Godzilla will but you know, it, it kind of just you know, gets blasted into goop and then just sort of reforms and it kind of shape shifts around. It turns into like the blob and like melts people with its acid. Pollution is the real monster. Godzilla ends up uh, blasting it and like ripping out mm. its eyeballs and stomping its eyeballs into the ground. Like you do. Mm. That that was the one way to kill. And of course, uh, uh, teaming up with uh, the the military who has you know, super maser weapons and all the rest. Mm. Uh, okay, look, who cares about the plot of a Godzilla movie? We're here to see Monster Mayhem. Is there any Godzilla movie that does have a great plot? No. Okay, just just checking. <laughs> the original, maybe. The original, well, the original is so simple. It doesn't yeah. really need a plot, really. Mm. Just this monster is attacking everything. Well, we it's stop like it. the and uh, I, I really like Shin Godzilla, but again, that's not about the plot. That's sort of about the bureaucracy. Yeah, it's about, it's about what's, the monster. It's about like this could actually be a relatively easily solved problem if we could just get the governments of the world working, yeah. but they're not designed to do that anymore. The, there's a wonderful shot in, in Shin Godzilla. There's all those chirons that say, you oh, know, here's where we are. And there's yeah. a little chiron on screen. Yeah. Like here's a lot of different the, locations. You want to and there's, and there's, they're usually these giant rooms full of like board members, you know, actual individual characters won't emerge until much later in the movie. Yeah. Uh, and then there's one shot where they show like this big boardroom full of people. And the screen's literally full of text. <laughs> it's like, like the, the bureaucracy is so complicated we need all this text just to explain the room we're in. And that kind of bureaucracy is preventing us from fighting a Godzilla. There's a little bit of a message to that one. This is the environmental message Godzilla film. It's very much hit me over the head with it. Yeah. Godzilla ain't be no, ain't be no subtlety to Godzilla. Uh, and indeed it ends with, uh, once Godzilla has destroyed the smog monster. Uh, I believe the actual wording of the caption is, and yet another one, as is <laughs> in in English text, uh, you know, uh, g- clearly slightly mistranslated. But uh, 
the idea that another smog monster might be on the horizon. This is a very odd film for a Godzilla film. Godzilla films tended to follow a pretty uh, basic formula. There was mm. the first half hour was before Godzilla showed up mm. and it was just establishing that there were bad guys in our midst who would manipulate monsters for their own evil to be uh, own uh, malevolent needs. They're usually space aliens. Uh, second act is monster appears, Godzilla appears and they spend the entire second act of the movie slowly walking toward each other. Uh, across the country. Like Triple Long Daffy, we're just waiting for the, yeah. for the shootout. <laughs> There's all these different angles. Yeah. And then the third act is monster fight. monster fight. Yeah. 90 minutes, in, out, simple. Golly, what a great formula. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then at the end, Godzilla twists off Mechagodzilla's head, and you're going, yay. <laughs> Godzilla versus the Smog Monster has a much... Uh, headier tone it feels a little bit more like a like a monkeys episode it's a lot more psychedelic than, <laughs> and, than any of the other godzilla I was, I was, movies i wasn't sure what definition of headier you were going for heady as in the monkeys okay i was about to say but it also could have been heady yeah. as in like you know college class like no mm. they, you're talking about some oh. weird some weird heady like druggy okay kind of just like, so we're clear yeah, like head shop kind of heady okay got it just so we're clear Monk, mon- the, mo- the monkeys movie head kind of heady. Uh, yeah, there, there's like really psychedelic music. Uh, and there's a, a scene in a, a nightclub. Uh, some of the characters are you know, sort of in and out of the nightclub. And uh, as such, it feels a little crazier and a lot more off balance than a lot of the other Godzilla movies, uh, which is fascinating for a movie about monster mayhem. It's actually trying to be really serious and mm. it doesn't fit, but in a weird way, that makes it a lot more enjoyable. Mm. And that something so silly is trying to say something really quite earnest. So, okay. uh, not Dirty Harry. Okay. Dirty Harry is about how Miranda rights are bad. Yeah. I mean, it's it's still, again, as pop cinema, mm. there's a lot of good stuff to it. And I would, you know, it's it's one of... There's... We talk a lot about, like, filmmaker collaborations, like when... Okay, here's all the times that Akira Kurosawa worked with Toshiro Mifune. Here's all the times that Martin Scorsese worked with Robert De Niro and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we don't always talk about the five-film cycle between Don Siegel and Clint Eastwood, mm. of which Dirty Harry is only a part. Yeah, uh, Coogan's Bluff, Two Mules for Sister Sarah, great movie. People don't talk about it enough. Mm. Escape from Alcatraz, great movie. People don't talk about it enough. Dirty Harry came out in 1971. You know what film also came out in 1971? Mm. Don Siegel's The Beguiled, starring Clint Eastwood. <laughs> I haven't seen the, this version of The Beguiled. The Begui- I've, I've seen Sofia Coppola's. Sofia Coppola's of version Beguiled. of The Beguiled is an interesting remake. I think the original is more of a gut punch. Mm. Um, the Beguiled is a Civil War story. It takes place at a uh, uh, school for young women uh, in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, all the men are off fighting. These women have been in complete isolation, uh, knowing that they are an easy target if any soldiers want to come around and do mm. something horrible. Yeah. Uh, so they've been living in a state of pretty much constant paranoia, all while trying to just keep calm and soldier on and do their studies. Mm. Uh, into their lives uh, blunders an injured Union soldier, played by Clint Eastwood, who is Clint Eastwood in 1971. He is a hunk of stud that is just walked into their lives like a gift from a porno movie. <laughs> and all every single woman there, regardless of age, starts responding to, oh, there's a man around. Well, 
Which is weird because I imagine touching Clint Eastwood would be like squeezing a sweater full of straw. <laughs> he, I think they're he, different he, movies. Even when he's young and studly, he he always struck me as like kind of frail. But here in this movie, though, his frailty is, I think, part of his appeal. Mm. You know, it's that he is actually very dangerous and violent, but because he is on the mend... Mm. He's a bit of a tamed lion, you know? Like okay. It's sort of like, so keeping him in the house is a little mm. dangerous, but probably not too dangerous, and, so it's in, fine. In the Sofia Coppola version, he was played by uh, Colin Farrell. Good casting. And, and Colin Farrell is like a rod of sex. Yeah. Like, you get it with Colin Farrell. Yeah, I, I think... There's a few things that got excised in Sofia Coppola's version. This version actually talks about, uh, you know, the situation at the time regarding black people. And Mm. Sofia Coppola kind of pointedly decided to leave that out of her version. Um, Thinking it was like wise to avoid it, but in avoiding it actually brought up some other issues. Actually made it worse. So, Mm. Uh, Don Siegel really gets into the muck with this whole thing, and there's no one. No one comes out of this movie unscathed. By the time this movie has progressed, and it has basically been turned into imagine misery, but with like twelve Kathy Bateses, uh, and that's kind of where we're heading with the beguiled. It turns into a horror movie without absolute shame. It goes from like a war movie to kind of this pastoral Terrence Malickian Western mm. into pure nightmare territory. And it's another one where I don't know what it was up with the 1970s, early 1970s. I don't know why everyone was sweaty all the time. Uh, you know, global warming is at us now. Mm. So why aren't we sweatier now? I don't know. Maybe. I don't know what the issue yeah, was. Maybe in 1970, when most of these films were being made, there was just a great big heat wave. Maybe so. Mm. Regardless, this movie is sticky. <laughs> this movie is gross. This movie is just, like... It, it, it's just badly shaved flesh rubbing up against each other. <laughs> and... It's violence oh, I, and it's I, I just, sex and in a really gross way. I just got a rash. Yeah, it's 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 an uncomfortable movie, but it's supposed to be in, intensely disturbing mm. in terms of what isolation can do, in terms of what repression can do, and and also in terms of like what women are forced to endure and what they are forced to defend themselves from in times of war. Mm. Uh, and so as a result, you can be... Only so mad, and yet also only so sympathetic. Mm. Uh, it's a really bitter, bleak film in a lot of ways, and I would argue it's, it's one of Clint Eastwood's best, and it's one of Don Siegel's best. And it was nearly my number one, but I decided, uh, uh, you know, the devil's. But anyway. My number three or seven, whichever, however, whichever direction you're counting. Like, you got two left. So we, already, two we already left. said what um, your number one was. Yeah. Uh, we ruined it. We ruined it all. Oh, no. What, what a tragedy. I guess you'll just have to skip the last picture show. Oh, well, this would be uh, the uh, third to last picture show. I suppose so. The, third the, the Rocky last picture show. Yeah. Um, the last picture show is uh, it's a, a coming of age drama. It's uh, an, kind of a nostalgia piece uh, because it's set, it's set in the 1950s in a small town in Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about it's about their last it's picture all, show. It's a, well, it's a, it's all sort of centered around. Uh, the local movie theater where a lot of uh, teenagers sort of came of age and where a lot of the, their formative experiences took place. Uh, that's in the background, though. It's mostly about sort of the characters. Uh, Sybil Shepherd is in it. Uh, Jeff Bridges is in it. Uh, and, yeah, they're... Uh, 
It's just about sort of all, all the little miniature kind of our town dramas within this town. There's uh, uh, the lonely wife with the gay husband. There's uh, Jeff Bridges who's trying to romance Sybil Shepherd, but she's not uh, not really uh, receptive to she his affections. Yeah. Um, there's Timothy Bottoms. He's, Timothy Bottoms is sort of like the Peter Bogdanovich stand-in character who uh, is uh, kind of uh, recalling all of this because, you know, looking back at his own youth. The, this is sort of like, this movie's a lot like American Graffiti with without the sentimentality. It is, a, looking back in a nostalgic fashion of a, a bygone era of times past and kind of lamenting that those days are gone, but it's not trying to relive them. It's not trying to necessarily celebrate them because there are like highs and lows looking back in the 1950s. I think nostalgia is most effective when it carries with it an element of criticism. Yeah. Uh, when you we can have perspective on it. When you can look back and say, that was really lovely, that was really nice, but that was also really stupid and things were, mm. bad things were also happening. Yeah. Uh, and I, I feel like that was a big reckoning that... Uh, Began, and this is kind of an early examination of the 1950s. Um, we, we talked about, what is it, Summer of 42, uh, there, which yeah. is also a film from this year. Yeah. Um, the, films the, about fi- the, the 50s were only about 10 years ago at yeah, this point. The, you know, the 50s were about as old then as like 2009 is now. Uh, the, but this sort of reckoning that the country was about to have with the 1950s really kind of started to come into swing during the Reagan administration, which wasn't until 1980. Yeah. Uh, here we are in 1971, looking back at the 1950s and pointing out that, no, there's actually a lot of uh, poverty. There's a lot of struggle. There's a lot of mm-hmm. in, uh, emotional uh, headbutting going on. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of drama that, of, about the 1950s that wouldn't really start to be ignored until the 1980s came along and started to kind of restage the 1950s as sort of an ideal time in the United States. And it helped that there was now like a full generation of adults at that point who weren't Mm. alive during the 1950s and were getting all their information about the 1950s through sitcoms. Yeah, sitcoms Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and movies. And movies, but sitcoms were very common and there was this... Television presented a very idealized version of America in the 1950s. Mm. The movies... Kind of hit or miss, honestly. We had a lot of like juvenile delinquent films and other kinds of um, horror and paranoia uh, films and like really kind of gross <laughs> suburban melodramas uh-huh. at the time as well. Uh, but to watch TV, to watch just Mr. Ed and My Three Sons, you'd think it was a halcyon perfect time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but golly, this cast, not just Timothy Bottoms, not just Civil Shepherd, not just Jeff Bridges. Cloris Leachman is in this. She mm-hmm. got an Oscar for this movie. Um, Ellen Burstyn is in this movie. Eileen, Eileen Brennan is in this movie. Uh, Clue Gulliger is Yay! in the last picture show. Clue Gulliger, who recently celebrated, I think, his 92nd birthday. Yeah. Uh, just, just, a, just a character actor mainstay. Been in more horror movies than you've probably seen. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he was a mainstay at the, uh, the, the movie theater where I work. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't come anymore. He is quite old. Yeah. But uh, he, he had a seat. In the front row. Yeah, it was reserved. Where always reserved for Clue Gulliger. Everyone knew that was Clue's seat. Yeah. And, and Clue Gulliger is like, uh, he even directed a film once, but it's like almost completely lost. I think he had a one, the one last print of it. Mm-hmm. So we got to show the film he directed. Um, but yeah, it's, it's always a delight to see Clue Gulliger. Uh, it's last picture show when I first watched it, I think I was like maybe 20 years old. I wasn't, I was about the 
the same age as the characters, maybe a little older. And it stung because the characters huh. make bad decisions and they're really kind of mean to each other. And they're struggling in a way that I felt was a little bit too close to home. Uh, I, I felt, uh, to use the, the kids' parlance, I felt seen. Hmm. Uh, and it, it wasn't the most comfortable feeling. So for a while, I hated The Last Picture Show for calling me out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it wasn't until I sort of revisited it a couple of years later that I realized kind of how, how insightful it was and, uh, and what it was really getting at. This is a film that I haven't seen in over 20 years at this point. Okay. I saw this in high school around the time I was starting to get like really invested in seeing all the great movies. And mm. I think at the time, there's a lot of movies I remember really vividly from the time. I think this one might've been speaking to experiences I hadn't had yet. Oh, okay. So I don't have a lot of vivid memories. I've been meaning to get back to this one for a while. Uh, I have nothing but respect for it. I certainly liked it, mm. but it didn't make the impact that I probably would have now based on everything. Everyone always tells me. Yeah. So, uh, I will, I will let it go. I will let it, <laughs> I will, I have nothing meaningful to contribute to this particular conversation other than cool. <laughs> uh, Neat. I mean, it's, it's good. All right. So maybe you should see it. I probably will at some point. I guarantee you I will at some point. Okay. I guarantee you I will at some point. I just haven't had a chance to revisit it in a while. Um, my number two, so to speak, mm. not really my number two, it's just the last one before my number one, uh, is... Kind of a headshot. I think it's a movie that a lot of people know about, or at least have mm-hmm. heard about, and appreciate for its various qualities. Uh, but um, it really is that damn good. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to the French Connection. I, I'm I'm surprised it's not your number one. Frankly, I know you're I, a big fan of the French I'm Connection. Not, I'm, I'm actually weirdly enough, I'm a bigger fan of the French Connection Part Two. Okay, well, I haven't uh, seen that one. Uh, is that uh, also John Borman? No, that was John Frankenheimer. And oh, John Borman didn't or, do this one. Fra- you're right, Frankenheimer. Yeah, yeah, this was... Um, um, I, I, I just lost a schmodown because I mixed up John Borman. You did, and now, and now, and now you somehow... Could, William Friedkin. Friedkin. This is a Friedkin right. joint. Um, <laughs> William Friedkin's The French Connection is based on a true story of a big uh, drug import bust uh, on the part of uh, two, uh, two hard-boiled cops mm. named Popeye Doyle and Cloudy Russo. And the NYPD, and they just basically stumble onto the breadcrumbs that lead them to this French smuggler who has been responsible for a significant amount of the narcotics that have been coming into New York City. Uh, And what's really remarkable... Frankenheimer. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Just yeah, look at just to confir- talk about, confirm it in my brain. I'll talk French about the French connection too. Is Frankenheimer not Borman? Yeah. And, I'll, and, I'll, yeah and the original was. I'll talk about a French connection too, which is 1975. I'll talk about that in a minute, uh, just to give some context to that. It's kind of a bold statement that I like the sequel better. Mm. Uh, most people don't even know it exists. Um, but uh, in any case, what's kind of remarkable about the French connection is how unremarkable it is. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really reinventing the wheel. It's taking a typical cop story. You know, the kind of cop story you might see on a TV series like Dragnet. Mm. But what's remarkable about it is this you-are-there, almost documentarian style that William Friedkin has for a lot of it. Not a lot Not a lot of this movie is really melodramatic or presentational. A lot of it is we're just going to sit you in the room and just yeah. see these guys do their business. Well, a lot of natural noise and yeah. a lot of sort of ground-level filth. It's not slick at all. No, 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 no. But when the movie... Like the, the film, like the, the camera is deliberately placed, mm-hmm. but it's... Oh, it's all in Roisman. It's, it's kind of beautifully kind of a, shot. A, a, 
grimy world. Do, do not say the more recent re-releases of this movie because William Friedkin just like went in and recolor timed this and made it look <laughs> weird. I, uh, I, I don't care he, for it. Friedkin's one of those filmmakers who just can't help messing with his own stuff. I, I don't think Owen Roisman would have been super happy about that. I could be wrong. Oh, I mean, he's alive, actually. I thought I thought maybe mm. he passed away. No, he's alive. So maybe maybe he's okay with it. I don't know. But I'm not a fan of the new approach. But whatever. Um, but uh, what? But so we've got this hard boiled detective story. We've got this very. Um, it, it's it's not very laudatory of the cops. We see Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider not be good cops. Like be like pretty shitty mm. actually. But they're doing their they're they're getting the job done. But, like, it, it ends with Gene Hackman doing something pretty damn immoral. Hmm. Um, and I don't think the movie believes that he was right to do it. I think it just said he did. Yeah. Um, but when the movie pops, there's, like, a few key sequences that are just a little larger than life. And William Friedkin knows that at the end of the day, I am making a cops and robbers movie. And I need to make sure that it does have those thrills. So it opens with Gene Hackman in a Santa suit chasing a guy down the <laughs> street. Yeah. Which I don't think would be topped until a not very good movie with an amazing opening sequence, U.S. Marshals, the sequel to The Fugitive, which opens with Tommy Lee Jones in a chicken suit. That's right. <laughs> doing the exact same thing, <laughs> which is pretty I, great. I remember really liking U.S. Marshals. It's okay. It just, I feel like the. They decided to make the second movie all about Tommy Lee Jones, which makes a lot of and, sense. And not Richard Kimball. Yeah. yeah, Richard Kimball's story is done. How, how's it, how could that possibly happen to him twice? Mm. I get that. So you're going to have Tommy Lee Jones after another guy. Making the guy Tommy Lee Jones is after now also framed for a crime he didn't, crime he didn't commit mm. just makes it his story again. Like, it, it's not Tommy <laughs> Lee. It, just, it was such a weird choice to do. I think it just make him like a super bad guy. Just do it. Like, why not? Anyway. So you got that awesome opening chase sequence. You've got this awesome climactic uh, scene where Gene Hackman has to chase down an elevated train in a car. Mm. Uh, and it's it's every bit as exciting as you've heard if you've never seen it. Um, but I feel like the French Connection is kind of like... I, 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 I've... I have issues with a lot of cop movies nowadays. You know, we've we've mm, we've, 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 we've Re elevated and reassessing our view of cops in media. So many cop movies are basically like, ah, the system is broken, man, mm. and like you know, so if cops are forced to go outside the law in order to do the right thing, and all that really is doing is celebrating corrupt cops. Like once you yeah. start saying, I'll break the rules when I feel like it, and I don't like it when other people ask me to justify myself. Dirty Harry. Yeah, yeah, like you're 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 just opening the door for rampant corruption mm -hmm. and for people to feel really good about it too. And to sort of expect that of the cops. And it's 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 not healthy. Um an individual film may not be guilty of that, but as in the aggregate, it's a problem. Mm -hmm. But um this movie right here is like the perfect flashpoint, like right in the middle of there, where it's really warts and all. Gritty and and it, it's earthy about, it's and, about and how they, earnest, but it, it also is. It does have enough Hollywood spectacle mm. that it no, it never feels like you're just watching like a drab documentary. You know you're watching a thriller, yeah. But it is reserved and pulled back and almost erudite in the way that it conveys itself. It's it's an exceptional film. It really is one of the best cop movies ever made. Uh, French Connection Two. Mm. Is maybe not as good as the French Connection One, but I like it better. French Connection 2 follows Popeye Doyle, Gene Hackman's character, 
Uh, at the end of the original French Connection, surprise, they don't get all the all the criminals. They don't they don't solve all the crime in New York City. Right. So he has to follow one guy back to back to France. So the next film is about Popeye Doyle going to France to try to capture this guy because there is a French connection. Yeah, that's that's the gag. Uh, there's a few fish out of water jokes in the beginning that have nothing to do with anything. They're not great. The best part of that movie, there are two amazing things in this movie. Uh, one, John Frankenheimer knew that at some point he would have to compete with the car slash elevated train chase. Mm. He decided to do it with a foot chase at the end of the movie, which is breathtaking and is super <laughs> awesome and really well, of well they're, done. They're running. Yeah. It would be breathtaking. That one wasn't so good. But the best part is, like, you, you think you know the structure of this? Like, oh, it's a cop tracking down the bad guy. You know where it's going to go. Completely breaks that in the second act when the bad guys know that Popeye Doyle is after him. So they kidnap Popeye Doyle and they basically, they, they shoot him full of heroin over and over and over again. Jeez. And then they just let him go. <laughs> so now his, and the whole thing is his credibility is, would be gone. He'll be off mm. the force. He can't do anything at that point. So some of the other cops... And again, this is corrupt, but it's interesting. Uh, decide that okay, we can't let this get out, so we're going to keep this guy in like solitary confinement for like a month while he detoxes. <laughs> and so the middle act of this movie is just Gene Hackman in a room detoxing. Wow! And he's Gene Hackman in the seventies, one of the best actors who ever lived. That's a great bit of acting. Like it's a really cool bit. So it's a movie that's like really not what you expect. So I really like that one a lot. And another weird bit of trivia here, the uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone, Billy D. Williams, Rucker Howard movie Nighthawks, that was supposed to be the French Connection 3. Was it really? That was the original oh, intent, funny. and they couldn't, get the, they couldn't get the original cast back, and they decided to just change the character names and make it a new thing. Right. So if you want to see the French Connection 3, basically you watch Nighthawks. Just, Nighthawks is fun. Just re-release it with, with, the, with the new title. Dub in the, the character names. <laughs> I've seen weirder things. Dan. I have too. It's it's, it's a Ninox is a good watch. These are mm. all good movies. I recommend them all. Uh, French Connection is arguably the best, but my favorite French Connection too. Okay. Anyway, what's your what's your number two? What's your uh, second to last film you want to talk about? Uh, I, I couldn't be more different from the French Connection. It's yeah. uh, Fiddler on the Roof. Oh, which which great we, pick. which we talked about kind of recently as another one of our. Uh, uh, your critically acclaimed, or not your? It was, no, it was, um, it was uh, the streaming club. Streaming club. Gosh, uh, they're they're all jumbled up in my brain. We do a lot. My of my brain is dead. Yeah, uh, I've been killing it with caffeine, but it's the only thing that keeps it alive. <laughs> what? Fiddler on the Roof is very very good. It is. It's really good. Uh, it's yeah, based on the uh, based on the hit Broadway musical. Uh, my my central complaint about the movie version of Fiddler on the Roof is that it's actually, mm. in terms of tone, pretty dour. Mm. Uh, the musical itself uh, is typically staged to be a little bit more upbeat, despite all of the the horrors that take place in the story. Yeah, uh, because Tevya is such an upbeat, kind of optimistic character, mm. and uh, Tevya is a, a you know well known Jewish sort of folk hero going back to. Uh, century ago literature mm. and um he has conversations with god and that's sort of his inner monologue is or these conversations he has with god he's uh, lives in this little tiny town called anatevka and he uh is just sort of telling the story of how traditions uh throughout the jewish community allowed this town to sort of thrive and also how 
they're in a constant state of having to reassess those traditions. Yeah. Every, almost every single major plot point in the movie is basically tradition coming to like realize that, Oh wait, the The, the new kids don't want to do that. Hmm. And we love them. Alright, you, like, you, um, you can mess around with it this once. Okay. <laughs> and then forever after, Okay, this once. Okay, this one. And at the very end, uh, it's actually kind of a tragic ending. Well, it's um, totally and, tragic. Yeah, and Anatevka, they, uh, they're uh, chased out of Anatevka uh, just because of raids that are going to happen in the town. Uh, history was not kind. And... Uh, and as they're leaving, uh, in the movie, it's all it's all very downbeat, and they you know they sing the Anatevka song, and it's kind of almost like a dirge. Uh, I've also seen it staged. I got to see uh, Fiddler on the Roof on stage uh, with Alfred Molina and Stevia. Um, you might have seen the clip online of uh, Alfred Molina wearing his Doctor Octopus costume, <laughs> yeah. singing "If I Were a Rich Man," which is pretty great because he was actually doing Fiddler at the time. Yeah, so he was. Dressed as Dr. Octopus rehearsing for the stage production so he was going to be funny. in. It's a great bit. Um, uh, but in that staging, uh, it comes to the very end. It's like, it, it was more like, oh, we're being chased out of our town. Everybody's really cruel. Oh, new traditions, new place. Let's get going. Yeah. It kind of stinks that we have to leave this behind, but hey, we can we can start again. Yeah. There there was a, a like kind of they a can't note. stop us forever. Yeah, exactly. No. There was this note of optimism, of of sort of survival that left uh, left you feeling a, a little bit better about sort of the horrible <laughs> things that these people were going through. Uh, and yeah, some there are some plot points in it where some characters don't turn out very well, but at the same time, they're always they tend to look on the bright side. So as as a as characters, you like all of them. Uh, there, none of them is like a, a villain, and all of the uh, all of the plot points could be boiled down to a lot of uh, tropes that would later be used on American sitcoms. Like, <laughs> oh no, what do I tell my wife? Oh no, my daughter wants to date blank. And uh, you see it on American sitcoms, and they're completely cliched and hackneyed and, and yeah. dull. Uh, you see it in Fiddler on the Roof. It's like, oh wait, I like these characters. I want, I well, want to know more about their story. It's not just about throwing people into an awkward situation. Mm-hmm. It's actually about we we get to know them so well that we we know how they're going to react yeah. in a certain awkward situation, and we know how much this means to them as well. Mm-hmm. It's not some superficial thing that's just happening for the audience to laugh. It's actually like it 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 affects them. Yeah. Um. Except for the one bit where Tevia makes up a nightmare. With like ghosts oh, to, and shit. To, well, he's he's trying to get his daughter wants to marry the local tailor. Yeah, but uh, she's he's, already been he's, she's, he's already she's agreed been to betro- marry her off betrothed to, a, to, a to yeah the the rich butcher yeah, Lazar so, Wolf and uh, yeah and yeah so he he lies to his wife he makes up the story about how Lazar Wolf's dead wife rose from the grave and said if if she if your daughter marries my husband she will die yeah and and of course the the wife believes him because she mm. he knows she she's super put, puts trust yeah. in dreams yeah uh it, he, that's he, that's the actually the way it's staged uh that bit's a little silly it, <laughs> it's fun it's a million I it's a million like, bucks it's so much fun it, it's the it's one sequence silly. that actually like makes more sense on film than it does on stage yeah. because we get to see people in like the ghost makeup rising up out of the graves and all these yeah. sort of like ghostly special effects um, yeah uh, and the I don't know the name of the actress I'd have to look her up but the, the actress who plays the dead wife mm. is like I think on stage she was originally played by some famous soprano so she's like singing all these high notes and ah. shrieking as she's chasing people around mm. um in in the film, it's actually like a legit zombie sequence where she's like lurching up out of the graves. Nice. Uh, 
Uh, yeah, I've, I've loved Fiddler on the Roof since I was a little kid. I watched it a lot when I was a kid. And uh, yeah, revisiting it, I was happy that I still enjoyed it. Yeah. And, it, and it's it's three hours in length, but it's a, it doesn't a feel big, like, long musical, and you just it, enjoy all of no, the songs and like, the music. Like a three-hour musical that doesn't work hmm. is death. Uh, if you ever want to see Paint Your Wagon, <laughs> why don't you unwant <laughs> no, to see don't, that? Don't, don't see Paint Your it's Wagon. It's so bad. I just could not believe it. But Fiddler on the Roof, which I had actually never seen until this last year or so, um, it's a delightful it's a delightful musical. I think if I had grown up with it, it probably would have made my list. Mm. I only just saw it recently, so it hasn't like, you know, found a place, a permanent place in my heart. Yeah. But yeah, it's really to, good. It made, it made it my again, runners up. Maybe, yeah. It made my runners up. It's a wonderful film. Okay. Um and then um and that leads us to our number ones, which eh, we already kind of did. Kind of anticlimactic. Re- re- reiterate what was your number one? Well, uh, let's just do. Let's just go through our top ten right. real fast. So for people who uh, want to just have them all on a list, uh, Whitney's top ten. And again, only number one is in order. The rest of these are just high recommendations. Uh, Harold and Maude, mm. The Devils, uh, THX eleven thirty eight, A Clockwork Orange, Walkabout. Shaft, Godzilla versus Hidora, because of course. <laughs> uh, the Last <laughs> Picture Show, Fiddler on the Roof, and uh, Wake and Fright. Wake and Fright was my number. Yeah, which is harrowing as hell on my list, too. Mm. Uh, my list, and I'm starting to wonder if I screwed something up here, because I think I wrote something down twice, uh, is Escape from the Planet of the Apes, The Abominable Dr. Fibes, THX 1138, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, Wake and Fright, and then I wrote Wake and Fright again. You wrote Wake and Fright twice? I think I might have. I th- you, maybe you I really, skipped over You really one. loved it, didn't you? I, I do. Uh, oh. It's. Uh, uh, th- I also put in... Oh, you um, forgot Walkabout. Maybe that's what no, you No, no. Wa- you, I haven't seen Walkabout. Oh, okay. So I, I didn't... That wasn't me as well. All right. Uh, a duel. Steven Spielberg's duel. Don Siegel's The Beguiled. The French Connection. And... Um, you know, fuck it. I'm just gonna put Shaft on my list too. If I if I, if I miss one, Shaft is probably closest right. to making him into my top ten that didn't actually. Boom, Shaft. There you go. And uh, my number one is Ken Russell's The Devils. Yes. Now, 1971 is a year that was actually really good for cinema, and we had no shortage of films uh, to talk about to hmm. pick from. There are a few notable films that I wasn't able to get around to or that I hadn't seen in so long I didn't feel comfortable properly celebrating them without giving them another look and I didn't have time. Mm. So real fast, I'm going to list a few significant films that I wanted to get to and this me leaving them off the list is not a critique. Okay. It's I don't feel comfortable with my critical perspective or I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Uh, so a few of those. Uh, Carnal Knowledge, haven't seen it since college. I haven't seen Carnal Knowledge. Last Picture Show, haven't seen it since high school. Uh, Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. I've actually never that's, seen it. That's a, a hole in my education as well. Pretty Maids All in a Row. Never saw it. Really? Yeah. Oh, God. I've seen that one yeah. a bunch. That's on my runners-up just okay. because it's like it's unbelievably sleazy. I'll, I'll, I'll yield the floor when that right. moment comes. Um, they Might Be Giants with George C. Scott. I've been wanting to see that for forever. I never that's got around to too, it. Yeah. Uh, Johnny Got His Gun by Dalton Trumbo. Uh, if you've hmm. ever seen the Metallica video... Uh, for one, one yeah. you've basically seen this insanely <laughs> bleak anti-war film. Uh, it's cool, but I've never seen the whole movie. Uh, I, uh, I have a uh, 1940s audio drama of Johnny mm-hmm. Got His Gun starring James Cagney. Oh, okay. And it's it's a monologue from within the main character's head. Yeah, that's wild. It's it's really good. Um, let's see here. Uh, Play Misty for me. I've never seen all of Play Misty for mm-hmm. me. Uh, I have never seen Brian's song. And I've never seen Minnie and Moskowitz or Straw Dogs. 
These are all to my detriment. These are all to my detriment. These are all to my detriment. I need to get around to these. Mm. Uh, November's been a really hectic month. I do have runners up. Is there anything you want to just play that you didn't get a chance to to see? I also haven't seen Play Misty for me. I also haven't seen Colonel Knowledge. I haven't seen Clute. Oh, yeah. With Donald Sutherland. Yeah, Clute Um, Clute was on my runners up. It's great. It just didn't make my top ten. Um... Not on my list is McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which is a film that I actually don't like, which I know okay. is you know might say some horrible things about my character. Hey, I like uh, Popeye. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they're just there. I've it's, it's been a while since I've seen the Andromeda Strain. I do like the Omega Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't seen Le Mans. I haven't seen. No, uh, there's um, what's it called? The Big Boss. Yeah, Bruce oh, Lee film. I, uh, it's not. I don't think it's a particularly good film. I think it's more of like a good like. Ooh, look oh, at who's okay. this guy! But the film itself isn't that great. So I, it didn't I, even. I've heard a lot that. about it. So, yeah, uh, yeah. But um, I haven't seen the Million Dollar Duck. <laughs> One well, might say that's my fault. Well, why don't you tell us your runners up then? Do you, have, right. do you have any runners up you want to just uh, give a shout out to while you can? Uh, let me uh, get my list up here. Um, okay. The French Connection was on my runners yep. up. Um, Pretty Maids All in a Row was on my runners-up. Uh, mm. Pretty Maids All in a Row, which was uh, written by Gene Roddenberry, uh, is about a high school guidance counselor, played by Rock Hudson, who is sleeping with all of the high school girls. And then occasionally, we learn later, murdering them. Weird but stuff. he's also depicted as this kind of, like, warm, fatherly figure. Mm-hmm. And uh, the plot of the movie is this young, nervous dude. is like, I want to score with girls. What do I do? And Rock Hudson says, let me tell you about scoring with girls. Wait a minute, I'm Rock Hudson. Uh, <laughs> so he says, why don't I send you over to young Angie Dickinson? And uh, she can teach you anything you need to know about making it with girls. And he kind of like forces, like forces a situation where they're like alone a lot so they can sed- the teacher can seduce the student. So fucking weird. It it is Gene, you're a, you were a weird guy. Yeah. Gene, you were and, weird. And it it doesn't even feel like he's advocating free love. It's just this sleazy movie about mm. adults sleeping with teenagers. Weird. Uh I've seen it numerous times at like midnight screenings. Like it's that kind of movie. Yeah, it's like just you, so you need bizarre, to see yeah, it after yeah. hours. Yeah. Anything um, else? Uh, yeah, uh, let's see, Shaft, Godzilla, The Abominable Dr. Fibes is one of my runners-up, mm-hmm. uh, Straw Dogs was one of my runners-up. It's an unwatchable film, but is a fascinating curio, but Frank Zappa's 200 Motels. Oh, okay. Uh, that one's an, an interesting one. Unwatchable, uh, but but recommended. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting mm-hmm. statement. Like, now that's on the poster. Unwatchable, but recommended. Uh, unwatchable. I would pay to see that, based on that <laughs> quote alone. I well, would. If, if you know about Frank Zappa, you know, it's sort of like yeah. a penchant for uh, sort of visual and aural chaos. He liked yeah. to sort of play with, with these really complex uh, musical themes and then had these like really sort of cheap, chaotic mm-hmm. videos to go with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did like They Might Be Giants, um, not just because I like the band. I, I, I sought out the movie because I liked the band. Yeah. Uh, the movie, it turns out, is actually pretty sweet. Yeah, it's a, it's a comedy about George C. Scott thinks he's Sherlock Holmes, mm. and his psychologist happens to have her last name be Watson, and it's right. just about their relationship, and it always looked really charming, I just never had a chance to watch it. Yeah, and and the, the title, They Might Be Giants, comes from an allusion to Don Quixote. Ah. Uh, we, we laugh at Don Quixote because uh, he's tilting at windmills. He sees giants, but we know they're really windmills, so, mm. windmills, so we think he's a fool. Mm-hmm. But they might be giants. Yeah. <laughs> and if they are, then he's doing the right thing. Yeah. So he, maybe we should side with the fool occasionally. That's sort of the message of that yeah. movie. Uh, and 
it's it's a long, ambitious film that uh, kind of codified a genre, but a touch of zen. By, oh yeah, uh, by King King Hu, I think is the director's name. Yeah, and, that's uh, a gorgeous movie. Yeah, and yeah, that that sort of uh, really calcified the wuxia genre. The uh, the very graceful. Uh, uh, wire, wire yeah. work with a lot of sword work yeah. uh, and, and there's yeah. a lot of spirituality it's very very long uh, yeah. it, it takes a lot of patience but it, it's it is, not, it's it is actually gorgeous not, to look it's at it's not my favorite in the genre but it's mm. an absolute must see if you have any interest in mm. Kung Fu or Wuxia cinema and there's a really great criterion of it mm. highly recommend it um, so that's it for you that's it yeah okay. um, let's see what I got here uh, Harold and Mod was on my short list uh, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks is a lot of fun that's all <laughs> just a lot of fun yeah. uh, uh, Duck You Sucker a.k.a. A Fistful of Dynamite, uh, starring Rod Steiger and James Coburn, is a really interesting film from Sergio Leone about an uh, Irish freedom fighter who goes to Mexico to fight in the Mexican Revolution, and he ends up tricking an outlaw into becoming a hero against his own wishes, because the guy's a monster. But everyone sees him now as like this great revolutionary hero, and he starts mm. buying into his own hype. It's an interesting story. Mm. A little clumsy in places, but it's it's really fun. Why did we ask James Coburn to play Men from the Isles? He, he's not a good. He's I not don't a good know. Irish. He, he plays a, a, a yeah. British man in The Great Escape. Well, um, I mean, Rod Steiger plays, is playing plays, uh, a Mexican, which English is also man. kind of kind of weird. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, I mean, Rod Steiger's a Mexican dude. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's how I, I they know. Get, it's how they could get the movie financed. I guess I don't I, know. I, th- th- this might be a predictable statement, but I saw that with my dad. <laughs> That's that's a movie you see with your dad. Um, anyway, uh, let's see who we got here. Uh, the the in addition, to, there's actually a really good year for car movies. In addition to Duel, we had the double feature of Vanishing Point and Two Lane Blacktop. Neither of which I've seen. Vanishing Point yeah, I, I, is a really cool is a really cool film about a guy who makes a bet to drive basically cross country in a very limited amount of time, uh, and then the cops start chasing him, which becomes this really long car chase movie. But also with a lot of weird. 60s spirituality that doesn't really fit the film so it t- that's what kept it off my top 10 and Tulane Blacktop was actually one of my dad's favorite movies I haven't seen it in a really long time so I didn't mm. feel comfortable talking about it but it's another one about just two dudes in their cars who just keep racing each other and that's the whole movie basically um, well, and isn't one of them like Satan at some point it's revealed like one of them has <laughs> I haven't seen Tulane Blacktop I think you might be thinking of Race with the Devil anyway well, I, uh, that, that is the plot of yeah. Race with the Devil but I think yeah. also in Tulane Blacktop isn't there some sort of weird I don't recall there's like a meta a element to Tulane Black. It's been a while. It's it's Monty Hellman, so I wouldn't be shocked. But mm-hmm. I honestly, I haven't seen that movie since I saw it with my dad when I was really young. Uh, but uh, let's see what I got here. Uh, Russ Myers is the Seven Minutes. Is I'm, I'm a big fan of Russ Meyer, but that's not what I've seen. Russ Meyer uh, made a lot of uh, sleazy sex movies, but over the course of making nearly countless sleazy sex movies, he developed a really excellent sense of style and character and story. <laughs> and you watch Faster it, P- you watch Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and you realize this guy knows how to make a goddamn movie. Um so uh he eventually got himself after years of making, you know, movies where the entire reason they were made is aren't boobs neat. Uh <laughs> I he, sure like those. Yeah, that was yeah. kind of that was kind of it. You watch a lot of his movies, that's a I, lot of the appeal. I, I remember <laughs> when uh the uh, Life Itself, the Roger Ebert yeah. documentary came out and they're going over his years. Uh Roger yeah. Ebert co-wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls and was yes. good friends with Russ Meyer. Yeah. And uh they a- asked a lot of people who knew Roger Ebert's like so he was, you know, a proponent of the arts. He wanted to sort of forward a uh, mm. good cinema and sort of fancied himself as a sophisticate. Uh, what is it with his relationship with Russ Meyer, who made these like schlocky B movies with a lot mm. of boobs in them? 
And most people just sort of like looked at their folded hands and just kind of had to honestly say out loud, well, Roger liked big boobs like that. That's kind of the end of it. <laughs> yeah. But I will say this. If you want to Russ Meyer, I've talked a lot about his movies. Uh, it, it, Fast and Pussy Guy, Kill Kill is fantastic. Mud Honey is as good as any movie made out of Tennessee Williams. It's just made from Russ Meyer. Um, <laughs> he made some good stuff. And he made a couple of studio pictures. One was Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. That was a big hit. And he followed that up with a movie that kind of tanked and they didn't go do any more studio films. But it's called The Seven Minutes. And it is about... Um, a, an erotic novel that is incredibly popular and it becomes the uh, center of a big court case where people are arguing that this piece of erotica led me to commit crimes. And so mm-hmm. someone actually has to like track down the mysterious author mm-hmm. and it's it's quite didactic, but you can tell it's also a story that's really close to Russ Myers's heart where someone's mm-hmm. like, oh, this has sex in it, therefore it can't be art. And there's a whole movie about defending that. So yeah, it's yeah. earnest really heavy-handed but it is very earnest and i do think it's overall it's a good movie um do want to give it its due mccabe and mrs miller is really really great it's not my favorite robert altman movie i don't really enjoy watching it per se i find it um there are parts of it that are truly enchanting and other parts of it where i'm just sort of interested Mm. uh but i do recommend it it is a very good film uh, Dario Argento's The Cat O' Nine Tales uh, with That's Carl Malden. Yeah. That's a pretty solid one. Uh, just just a rock solid giallo murder mystery. Uh, the Andromeda Strain, early Crichton adaptation. Um, it's been done since, but I don't think it's been done better. I think uh, just that, this, it's a really good like plague from outer space movie with a bunch of scientists trying to solve it. And well, you know, a, the, a, the, a the tech my... hasn't aged very well, but mm. the, the storytelling is great. Well, it, it's very tech centric. Mm-hmm. It's all about sort of the process they need to go through to quarantine themselves and the kinds yeah. of uh, you know where they found the virus, the kinds of things they're looking for. It's it, it's all complete hogwash. It's not based yeah. on like, like it's based vaguely on real science a little bit more than. Uh, your typical thriller. Mm. Uh, but yeah, if you're into process, uh, then you'll like the Andromeda strain. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, let's see, moving on. Uh, great comedy from Norman Lear and Dick Van Dyke, cold Turkey. I haven't seen that one. Either. Cold Turkey is about, uh, Dick Van Dyke tries to win like a $25 million pot by convincing his entire town to quit smoking at the same time for 30 oh, wow. days. Okay. And, this is a heavy smoking town. So within a couple of days, everyone's ready to kill each other. Like everyone, there's a, there's a scene where someone's got to like go into surgery and the surgeon's just got, he's got the shakes. <laughs> and Dick Van Dyke is like chasing him around surgery. Like just, just like, no, you can't smoke. You got to do the surgery like this. And the guy in the gurney's like, please, for the love of God, let him smoke. <laughs> um, it's really, really funny. It's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, if, if, if I watched it recently, it held up as well as I remembered. Maybe it would, uh, it would be in my top 10. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see, a couple more. Uh, Get Carter is really fantastic. Uh, barely edged out of my top ten. Just okay. really great hard-boiled British uh, noir film. Uh, I'm very, very fond of Diamonds Are Forever. It's a very silly Bond movie, but it's an intensely watchable Bond movie. Like, it's a very good time. Uh, Fiddler on the Roof, that's, maybe that's runners the one, up. Uh, yeah. Diamonds Are Forever is the one that uh, Sean Connery came back for. Yeah. after uh, He took I, off I, on Their Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. He came back for Diamonds, and then he left again. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because of... Conflicts with Lazenby. Uh, no, Lazenby. Uh, Lazenby was convinced by his agent that he only needed to do one. His career was set. You'll never. Oh, I, I you heard, don't need to keep doing these Bond movies. You're I heard fine. He, was, he was like kind of muscled out of the role by like he, studio head. They might have been very happy to see him go, but apparently he did not fight for it. Oh, okay. like so he was he 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 was convinced. He talked about this like he regretted it. Like his agent convinced him like you're good. You did a Bond movie. Your career's set. You'll be able. You get good roles forever now. That did not happen for George no, Lazenby. 
I think he's probably best known for playing James Bond. Yeah, at this point. I'm sure you he is. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, and then a couple other ones. Uh, uh, Clockwork Orange obviously is on my runners up, and okay. so is Fiddler on the Roof. But um, in any case, uh, it's a very good year for cinema. Fifty years ago, I'm curious what fifty years from now people will say about this year. There's some interesting films this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah for uh, sure. No, it's a really good, uh, really good dynamic uh, group. Uh, later on this year, we'll talk about our favorite films of the year. I still got a lot of catching up to do. Oh, so heck I'm glad yes. we don't have to do yeah. it yet. I, I do too. <laughs> um, some film critics have to like submit their ten best of the year list like at the beginning of December. Mm. Why? Well, there's another month to go. The Matrix we hasn't even screened yeah. yet, for God's sake. Like, there's a chance it's good, right? Like, you got to give it a chance. Mm. Like, wait, uh, wait I, till you've I, seen more I, stuff. I, I'm not going to name them, but I do belong to uh, a certain group where uh, they wanted us to pick uh, one of the best action films of the year, action movies. And But we had to submit before uh, The Matrix and the new Spider-Man film had been released. Yeah, and, those are prominent films. You know, those are, yeah, those are bigger movies that have the potential to be good action movies. Yeah, they said they're... Maybe they're, we should see them to make interesting sure. Interesting ideas yeah. in both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Nope. They, they'll nope, rush so, yeah. to be first. I'd rather be right than first. I'd... I'd I, I've, I'd I've, rather be confident in my opinion than just okay. to say I did it first. I've, I've had a theory for a while, and this yeah. is a little off topic, but um, the Academy Awards should be given to films that were released two years prior. Yeah. Not, I, not, the, not in the, the immediately previous year, but the one before it. I would say at least So we have months. another year to sort of consider it and think about it. I think, I think it's still in the conversation. Because it would reduce the glut at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. Think about how many movies are like we talk about over and over again for months at a time mm-hmm. because they're supposedly going to be up for Oscars and maybe they even win a few. And then a year later, you're like, wait, who was in the imitation game again? I can tell you for sure that is going to happen with uh, the Ricardos. I'm sure. We're, we're not going to be talking about the Ricardos we talk like, in these, two months. We talk about some of these movies because they're Oscar contenders, but like a year later, some of them just, they're just not, mm. they, they don't stick. That doesn't mean they're bad movies. They could be really, really good movies. They could really, really good work in them, and maybe they're even award worthy, but they're not necessarily the films that resonate over time. Uh, and I think we rush it like way too much. I, I think a year might be a bit much. I think six months is fine. Mm. Uh, just you just want them to have like been out of theaters for a little while so that the marketing engines have stopped for a bit. Yeah. That's what you need. Just to give people a chance to not talk about them for a while and then just actually go, wait, which one's actually stood with us? But anyway, that is it for the Iron List. Thank you everybody for listening. Another really, really long episode because that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are a member of our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, every single tier gets to vote on our various polls and we have a poll for the Iron List Every single month, uh, this month, we're going to have a poll for the Iron List that includes the following. Uh, whichever, uh, whichever one of these is, uh, is, uh, is nominated is, is, is a thing. You, <laughs> well you can put, vote for uh, one of these, yes. and, these and, this, and we'll have to do it uh, before the end of December or maybe on the 1st. Um, wait, what? Oh, 30 days has September, April, June, <laughs> November. Oh Shoot, this, actually might, this episode might be a day late. What are the Sorry. topics that you can Here are the topics. the December poll? Here are the topics for the December poll. The best mockumentaries ever. These are films told in a documentary style, but aren't real documentaries. Uh, could be everything from like broad comedies like This is Spinal Tap to found footage. They just mm. can't be real. Um, 1980s comedies. The best comedies of the 1980s. It's a big decade. It was a huge decade for comedy. Lot to choose from, a lot of variety. The best courtroom dramas, uh, which is another really, really big category. Uh, mm. And um, a lot of, uh, I'm sure there'll be at least a handful of John Grishams in there. Uh, the best movies based on TV shows. Uh, could be sitcoms, could be dramas. Uh, but regardless, there was a TV show and now there's a film. <laughs> Bada bing. 
Uh, and then lastly, the best movies that begin with the letter E. Because we've done A through D so far, mm. and we might as well keep going if you vote for it. So head on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Even for $1 a month, you get to vote in those polls. Mm. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you to all of our patrons, without whom this show and none of our other shows would exist. Just from the bottom of our hearts, thank you very, very much. If you want to talk about any of the uh, films that we discussed on this episode, you want to you know berate us for leaving off your favorite film, you want to tell us that our movie we would like sucks, uh, the best way to do that is to email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of our podcast, We've Got Mail. Indeed we will. We also have a P.O. box for people who like to send us physical letters, which are a lot of fun. Oh, yes. Yeah. Get, get a pad of paper and a pen out. Like, give it a try. It's, it's neat. <laughs> you can attach a feather to it and make you feel old-timey. Uh, to the pen or to the letter? Yeah, your call. Ta- tape a feather to the letter and put yeah. it in an envelope. No, put, t- t- in, in, I was thinking the some pen. Sort of, but... sort of uh, symbolic gesture of some kind. I know. What's our P.O. Box? Uh, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Make it out to me or to William or to the Critically Acclaimed Network. That's right. And uh, uh, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. And, uh, of course, you can buy soaps from the soap store I own with uh, M. Lapis da Silva. Uh, that is Salt Cat Soap. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at Salt Cat Soap, all one word. Mm. Or you can go to Etsy, look for Salt Cat Soap, all one word. We make and design handcrafted soaps. We have a lot of cool stuff for the holidays. Uh, and uh, thank you, everybody, who took advantage of our Black Friday sale. Uh, if you're listening to this now, it's a little too late for that. But we still have a lot of really good deals. And if you order early, you can get them in time for Christmas. So enjoy. Mm. Uh, thank you, everybody, once again. Whitney, do you have anything to add? Nope, not a thing. Now let's get the hell out of here. Thank you so much, <laughs> every everybody, for listening. And uh, that's the list. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to hero.co to shop today.